Crash Chords podcast for the so technically it was supposed to be the final time in 2016, but actually just a little early in 2017. Um, I, of course, am Matt, aka Stormageddon. I'm John. I'm Steve. And uh, welcome to our week long extravaganza of Catch Up with the Podcast. Of which uh, today is the end. Yes. Yeah, it's not our week long. This is the end. Well, it was the a end, week my long. Friends. It was a week long. Even though it hasn't happened yet, by our count. <laughs> by, by, by our recording this. Um, you know, a lot of stuff up front just to say, uh, of course, we love doing these year in reviews every year, um, and it's a tradition I look forward to. We had some uh, unforeseen circumstances towards the end of this year just with uh, stuff career-related to me, uh, busyness for John, all of us getting sick at three separate points, um, travel and some other stuff. It just gunked up the last, like, eight weeks and made it difficult for us to catch up and even stay ahead. So, But we made it happen, and we, that's what matters. We, we do. We uh, we care about our devoted fan base. Um, so, uh, hi, Star F, and everyone else, of course, listening as well. Um, just, I figured, it's not an episode without a Star F shout-out, you know, at this point. You did do it very recently. I did. I, uh, Last week? Maybe? Week before? Was I don't know. doesn't matter. Time time is wibbly-wobbly. Anyway, so before we get started, I just wanted to say that we appreciate you guys sticking with us. We're sorry for the delay and uh, the more recent episodes, and we aim to try and get back on track uh, before the end of January at the latest to be streamlined so there won't be any uh, lag in episodes going forward. Um, but as always, we do appreciate your patience. Um, we are humans with feeble, feeble, fleshy casings that are easily infected. Ouch. <laughs> yeah. Uh, my mortality is suddenly very obvious. Yes, very. Um, but, uh, but yeah, so a little bit about this kind of episode, if this is your first time turning, tuning into the year in review, um, we like to take a look back on our final episode of the year, or is this case our first episode of the year, sort no, no, of? No, we're doing a season. We're going seasonally. Oh, right. All right, seasons. So at the end of every season, we like to uh, sum up everything that we've done that season and, you know, pick if we have any changes to our rating, uh, give prizes, you know, kind of on the general level of just, you know, catchiest songs, stuff like that. And then we dive deep into the worst and best of the year. Um, and then, you know, I always, of course, have thank yous and stuff to wrap up with as well, though I had done some of that at the top of the show. Um, I think it's uh, important for us to do this because it allows us to reintegrate and interact with things we've done over the course of the season because it is very easy when you do f f between 45 and 50 albums a year to forget what album 1 through 10 was that year. True. And so I think it's great that we go back. It allows me to refall in love with albums that I might have liked at the beginning of the year that f due to time constraints or over being overwhelmed by other albums haven't just been listening to as much. There were definitely a few that I forgot we did this year. Not mm -hmm. that I forgot we did, but this year's content, it was, it, they feel, seem like so much longer ago. Especially over the, like, the last three months, I believe it's been like our highest block of rating over these last three months, just on average. There have been a lot of consistent fours. Yeah, and mid and upper tier fours interspersed in really good albums on top yeah, of that. But it's true what you were saying before that 
the earlier albums in the year, it's it's not that we forget them, but I think by the nature of what we do, when we go from one episode to the next, we tend to sort of erase our brains a little bit because it's necessary for taking on that week's project. Sure. We need to kind of just like blank slate, wipe the chalkboard, and then focus on that album and all of what it has to offer. And yeah, it can kind of screw with our memories a little bit, but certainly some things stay with us, and this is the time to address that. And also, really quick before we get started, I also want to mention that at the end of the show, also we'll talk a little bit about stuff that we wish we had brought on this year. I think it's important to acknowledge the albums that we're really into that just either due to time constraint or priority or whatever the reason is, we just don't bring it on. Intimidation. There are a lot of reasons to not bring on a record to our show. And Oh, intimidation hasn't held me back so far. Well, that's good. But, uh, but, but in all seriousness, it is important to acknowledge those albums too because, you know, we listen to a lot outside of what we listen to every single week as well, and we like to acknowledge that a little bit. Um, so why don't we get started with uh, our rating changes? So this is unofficial rating changes, either throughout this year or the Pantheon, if we so choose. Albums that we rated at a certain level on our one to five scale, technically zero to five scale, and if we wanted to bump it up or down based on perspective, experience, you know, sitting with the album. We often talk about how when we listen you know, so even if we give it five or six listens over the course of a week or two weeks, we could still miss a lot of content on our record, depending on the complexity, the levels of instrumentation, vocalization, lyric writing, whatever it is, it's easy to miss those things. And so I think that it's important that we go back, sit with stuff and decide maybe it is or isn't as good as we thought it was. And that's why I want to start with the best of for me. The best and biggest change overall was... Eno by Second Relation, which was mostly because we got the book jacket. We got the actual lyrical content. That was so satisfying. Yeah, and when I was reading it, I realized everything I had missed in that album. I'm... I already gave that a 4.75. Like, it was already a really great album, but I'm bumping that up to just shy of perfect at a 4.9. I also want to... I put it. (laughs) Um, I also want to take a moment to thank Simon, who reached out on the Facebook page, and to me personally, um... Simon from Second Relation. Um, we're glad that you guys like Doug what we do. You know, that's why we do it. I mean, we do it for ourselves, but as well as the community as a whole. And we're so glad that you dug it, enjoyed sharing it. Thank you for sharing it. And uh, we look forward to future works from you guys. So please stay in touch. Indeed. Um, I guess uh, since I am currently flapping my gums, I will uh, do my first big bump up. Um, I have two this year, but the first one is actually from one of our guest picks. Maiden Heights, Without My Enemy, What Would I Do? This was brought on by Mike Rugnetta, who has been on both Autographs and the Crash Course podcast this year. Um, I originally put it at a 4.45, but I've been listening to it a lot lately and really kind of getting into it and, and getting deeper with it. And there was a lot of stuff that John had said in regards to its arc and its construction and its fluidity that I think upon multiple listens really sank in. And so I'm boosting it from the 4.45, as I previously mentioned, to a 4.7, um, because I think it belongs in that upper echelon top tier. It, it really is a phenomenal album and uh, something that I think is really easy to sink back into. Even if you haven't listened to it in weeks, you kind of just fall right back into it once, it, once you listen to it again. And I really dug that. All right. 
I am fairly comfortable with many of the ratings that I gave this year, but I'm taking an extra liberty to this particular exercise, where in the year in reviews, I don't think we should just do the year in review. In terms of at least these rating changes, because of course, the, when we go through the following categories, they will concern just the albums within the last year. Mm -hmm. But for the rating changes, we have a giant list, and the list doesn't really make any distinction between, you know, what year it is. If right. you, could, you could sort and then all of a sudden it's a big jumble of everything that we've done from 2012 to 2016. Or, ooh, 2017 now. I get to, I have to get used to saying that. And so, as a result, I am reaching back in time and I'm going to make adjustments that I think are warranted. Because sometimes when we encounter a new album, and then I rate it at a certain number, which I know is sort of closer in the same vicinity as that older album that still sticks in my head, because sometimes I have an identic memory when it concerns album ratings, and I remember what that was, and I'm just like, ooh, can they really be back-to-back, -back? especially when you press that sword button? And sometimes it just bothers me. So... The first, despite that I'm setting this up as if it's going to be something negative, there will be two of my ratings will go down and one of these ratings will go up. I'm going to start with the one that is going up, and this may surprise you or may maybe you won't. Paramore. Hmm. 4.2 is what I gave it, and I'm pushing it up to a 4.6. Wow. Wow, that is a big jump. It is a big jump. I've been what's, listening what's, to yeah, what's the reasoning? The reasoning. Uh, I, I can't even express how much this album has held up for me in three years' time. I can't even really believe how much it's held up. And I have a slight confession. A part of me has always been slightly embarrassed whenever I rate an album somewhere around 4, 4.1, or 4.2, because then I think back to the archive, that Excel document, and I always remember that Paramore was a 4.2. And I think, how can I justify throwing whatever I'm rating right up there with Paramore? And usually it's for the reverse reason. I think, like, all right, Paramore is kind of more for a youthful demographic. It wasn't a terribly, you know, it wasn't pushing the boundaries of music, as I'm always looking for. But here's the thing. When I'm wrestling with my conscience, sometimes I re-listen to Paramore just to see whether my novice second season Crash Chords rating was justified, and I think I've wrestled for my very last time. If anything, I undersold it. It is a total fallacy to judge a band on their age demographic. Paramore had actually matured beyond measure on that album. It was a stellar 17-track monstrosity, an eclectic mix of old, fast and fun Paramore, really well-written pop songs, incredibly sad songs, introspective angst, introspective maturity. It pulls from stuff from the 80s, from alt-rock, from country. There's a heartbreaking song there called Hate to See Your Heartbreak, and then also a post-rocky final track called Future that really does push the boundaries of music and look toward the future. And and also, much like a recent album of ours, Scattering by Prager, it was divvied up into stages of its evolution with those ukulele interludes. So, in short, I love that album. I think it's a diverse album. I think it's a complex whirlwind of emotion, and it's deeper than I think most of the albums that we've looked at. And I can defend it right alongside the big timers, no problem. 4.6. That is similar reason to my, my one reduction of the year. <laughs> Huh. Which is Yugen Death by Water, which I gave a 4.75. But on subsequent listens, and by comparing it to the sort of stuff I was seeing at a 4.5 to 5.0 at the end of this year, when I'm looking at stuff like Eno or when I'm looking at stuff like The Scattering, I'm, I'm seeing amazing pieces of art, but some of the things that I was really wowed about, especially in Yugen, 
just don't seem nearly as impactful. I maybe it was just Yugen is a giant experiment. Yeah, because I I even even when I was enjoying it, it was a hard enjoyment. I think that was that was the thing. I was maybe projecting a little bit extra bonus power to it that I. Only because I was confused by it in in some ways, or only because it was so challenging. But and while I love my challenging stuff, it, that's not the be all end all of it. So, it's going from a four seven five to just a solid four five. It's a great experiment of an album, but in the whole, I don't think it really is an upper echelon, like the top of the top. It's funny that you both mentioned things that you're reflecting on to change your rating, and uh, also my next change was both reflection just with the work itself and upon others within the same rating stratosphere. So I originally gave Steam Power Giraffe's The Vice Quadrant a 4.25. But upon multiple listens, it's ch- it, the album as a whole with the arc and the way it's broken up in these acts with this convoluted story is a train wreck. It's Ooh. an absolute train wreck comparatively to, especially comparatively to their other records. I feel like for a live show or for a theatrical release, like if this was the soundtrack to a movie or they were doing a live stage play, which they might be when they do their concerts, it, I think it's way more solid. But just trying to interpret and understand and follow based on the music itself and the quality of the music comparatively to the previous two records and even everything in the steampunk kind of world, I just feel like I'm starting to see them kind of more in the eyes of the community is seeing them because a lot of them see them as a showy, kid-friendly kind of sellout kind of a band. And while I wouldn't go that far because I do enjoy their work, I feel like Vice Quadrant is moving more in that direction, which makes them more money, makes them more successful, more power to them. They do what they got to do. But this is going for from a 4.25 all the way down to a 3.75. They're still talented musicians. The Spine is still one of the greatest singers I've ever heard. But... I'm just not happy with this record, and upon multiple listens, it it fails on a lot of levels that the other records did not. Yeah, as a double album thing, that was that was pretty poor. Yeah, um, just, I forgot that you rated it so high as yeah. a four point two five at the time. Yeah. I'm happy with my solid four. Yeah, well, it's it's just a bummer for me. Mean. Stop being so mean. No, to I'm them. being articulate. He's, he's being real. Stop yes. being mean to them. Be real. Keep being real, man. Um, Always be real. So. Let's uh, let's get turn. your your second choice, Steve. My for, second for, choice for changing the rating. Well, remember, all of mine are back in time, mm-hmm. way back in time. Maybe I need a little bit more time to sit with the ones that I actually rated this year. Could be. But I I've really come to some conclusions over stuff we did a long time ago. Okay. Another old album, the archetypal 4.5 for me is coming down. Hand cannot erase by Stephen Wilson. Oh, interesting. I feel like it automatically attained the upper echelon because of the stirring nature of the topic he was covering. The poor woman who died alone in her London flat without anyone noticing for three years. The problem is here, real life is sadder than the fiction of this album. He chose something that was so topical that the album itself was kind of a letdown. Mm-hmm. There is a lot of good music here, and, and it's still a fascinating idea. But the music in certain tracks, uh, at times it's just a little too latter-day Pink Floyd. It doesn't seem mm-hmm. to reach out like to the very specific topic that he seemed to be covering. I think about the album, and I think what spurred me to... to uh, 
go for the 4.5 was really just the very nature of the topic, which really came out of my reading about the album, about my research. Then it actually came, like, if I didn't know any of that, it never would have gotten the 4.5. Mm-hmm. It, it, it's a good prog album, but there's, I think the other prog, prog albums we've done uh, in the past four years have really shown above Stephen Wilson. I know Stephen Wilson has done amazing things. He was in Porcupine Tree. He's done all these amazing things with amazing bands. But that particular album, although it got really shining ratings, it was just a little too in its own head, maybe. Okay. Uh, that's the best way I can describe it. So it's it's coming down to me just to a 4.25 from a 4.5, just okay. out of the upper echelon, but still a good album in general. All right. John, your final rating change. You don't know it was my final. I mean, we discussed <laughs> off-air that we only did three each. And so it was I do like, know. It was kismet, but it's not, it doesn't mean anything. Um, one album that I, th- that I just did not see eye-to-eye with Steve on how good it was was uh, Varmint's. Was Anna Meredith. Oh, ouch. And I, was, I wasn't completely wrong, because I think I'm still underneath what you thought of it. But uh, I only gave it a 4-3, and that was really just not good enough for that album. So it's actually my biggest change to um, a solid 4.8, a full half point up. Oh, you like, went up. Really, yeah. You set that it, up like you were going down. No, 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 no. I, I am more in tune with what you saw on that album. Um, I think it was just, it was one of those extra repetitions. I listened to it probably three times in the last three weeks, Hmm. surrounded by a lot of other really good stuff, and it still stuck out. Yeah. Compared to, compared to the four nines and fives that we've had this year, and the four eights, and all the stuff I was listening to, it still stuck out. I think it had something to do with the sequence of events. Now, this is where it comes in handy, the fact that I memorized all the episode numbers, because that was episode 192. It was followed by M83, which was still an interesting project, but then we had Arca, and then we had Yugen. So after that, we weren't thinking about like Anna Meredith that much, because we were talking about that, it was like I said, it's kind of like erasing the chalkboard. We have a new week and it's really uh, high task, so we have to kind of leave the other thing behind. Doesn't mean we have to stop enjoying it, but that's the reason why we have these episodes so we can address what we had back then. All right. Uh, My last rating change of this year is one that was kind of it was kind of unavoidable to change, but unpredictable as well. Um, I had a similar experience with Queens of the Stone Age album that we did. Um, we found out after the fact the whole album's narrative was about the lead singer Josh Homme's, uh near-death experience, where he was actually dead for a very brief amount of time and was brought back. And, that, and after listening to the album over and over again and knowing that afterwards, which I agree we should have probably tried to find out beforehand, but as, as that may lie... I boosted that rating because it really did open up the album for me. Well, same happened with me, but on a much larger scale with Leonard Cohen's You Want It Darker. Leonard Cohen's an artist that I've always liked, and I've said on this podcast. The big singles were always the big singles. I mean, we wouldn't have Jeff Buckley's version of Hallelujah without him. True. And the original version is still just as sad and haunting in a different way. Um, After I found out he passed and I listened to... Hallelujah that day, I cried. It made me really sad because I realized how much of an impact songs like that had on me in my life and how impactful Leonard Cohen was. 
And also knowing that he was writing this album because he knew he was suffering. He knew that he was on his way out. I mean, we speculated about that, but it really does change the meaning of this record. I mean, it absolutely does. And so you want a dark round bumping up from a 3.9 to a 4.25 because I think it belongs in the, the low ends of the fours because for what Leonard Cohen does, he was doing something even more progressive. And I feel him doing a similar thing to Bowie's Black Star and wanting to write something as his last hurrah, his goodbye, his sign-off, and being as frank as he was, was absolutely needed in music, and it really impacted me personally when I re-listened to it. I'm a little fuzzy on my wrap-up for that album, but I think I said those exact things with that exact rating, so I'm happy you you agree with me on this one, because, yeah, Leonard's, uh, his final, like, hurrah to the world, his final shout into the wind... Uh, was for me like a real a real great moving album this mm-hmm. year. Yeah, I agree. All right, my final rating change. Um, uh, this might surprise you. Maybe it won't. Stop I'm saying I, that. <laughs> he likes to think he's so surprising, but now I know he's yeah. not. Surprising. We're all on the no, same level at this point. It's sad, really. This, mm-hmm. won't, this won't surprise John one bit. Okay. Macklemore. Uh, oh, you're going to bring it down, aren't yeah, you? Yeah, he's definitely bringing it down. I, I kind of hate to do this because well, I, I hate taking part in some mass set of backturning. Uh, I, I fear that Macklemore is quickly becoming the Dane Cook of hip-hop. People loved him and then collectively decided they shouldn't. But the grievances against Macklemore in general out there I think are mostly pretty trite because he's certainly no more guilty of the same indulgences than other rappers in his industry. My rating lowering has nothing to do with any of that, nor even with the jab at Macklemore we recently discussed in Popstar. Well, essentially this is me turning inward to acknowledge what I really enjoy out of music. And what I really enjoyed on that album was one track. The instrumental bomb bomb. <laughs> that's just, that's me. That's where I sit with my enjoyment of music. Retrospectively, looking at the rest of the album, his rapping, his wordplay, they never blew my mind. And I really sat with that. I tried to think about this. It, they didn't floor me like, for instance, uh, Aesop Rock did mm-hmm. in episode 198. Most of the time, Macklemore is just speaking. It's a lot of closely miked candidness, which certainly achieves his social message talking points, but it also masks a lack of flow. I also really like the singles on that album, and the middle finger to the music industry, all very good things, but the rest of it kind of washes over me in a kind of a subdramatic way, if that makes any sense. If my closing monologue in that episode appears to show otherwise, I think I was actually projecting John's exuberance for the album, Mm. which is the risk we run in doing a show to Together for four and a half years. It's like comedy. Appreciation can often be contagious. But if I'm being honest, without being cruel, I haven't gone back to that album in any magnetic way ever since. 4.7 for me is coming down to a 4.3 for personal reasons, but still in the fours for being a fairly cohesive work that makes a lot of valid points, tells some interesting stories, and was radio ready in an unorthodox fashion. That's why it's still in the fours for sure. Um, I'm actually glad you brought this album up because I have not really listened to it since that year. And I feel like albums like you mentioned earlier, Aesop Rock and even Michael Kill's newest record, Shape of the Dark Lord's last EP, like all these rap albums have impacted me way more and have done more. And I feel like, I feel like it was the flavor of the week. And I think we did all, I was as hyped as John was and I believed it as much as John did. I don't know that I would lower my rating at this point. You gave it a solid five. I did give it a solid five. 
I, if I do go back on it, it's not going to be this year. But I will admit that I haven't really been listening to it since. So it's it's actually still on my phone. It still gets play. All right. I, I still listen to the heist. I, I still really really enjoy pretty much every track on the heist. All right. All right. Like that one. Because it's not just it's it's them both. It's mm-hmm. everything about it. It's sort of. Uh, I don't want to go political about this year, but it was also one of the few things that was getting me through a lot of the politics from this past year. That's fair. I think so, that I think connection to an album is important. I think if you do step away from it, you can see things in an album you might have missed during your exuberance or attachment. Yeah. Yeah. All right. It's time to move on to the general prizes. Uh, so we're going to go through these sort of general, very specific categories, which we feel are owed to certain things in very specific ways uh, before we kind of go into the the booby prizes, and then ultimately the big giant wins, which is just the best of the best, both song and album. But first, the specific stuff. And one of the things that, for our first-time listeners, uh, one of the things that we do that is a little bit different than stuff like the Grammys is we don't go by genre because, well, some genres would obviously have just one choice because we only do one type of genre. And then there's so much bleed over with the things that we do. So we shy away from those categories. The categories we deal with are more pan when it comes to music in general. So, for the first one, catchiest song. And it's exactly what it sounds like. It's just quite literally the song you can't get out of your head. A song that's stuck with you from the moment you hear that chorus, you hear that first instrumental, and it just gets stuck with you. And I I might I guess I'll start this one off since John started off our last set. Um, uh, my catchiest song um, is from an album that a guest brought. Um, I'm actually throwing a lot of love to guest-picked uh, records, as I did with Made in the Heights in our rating changes. My catchiest song is by Run the Jewels, which was brought to us by um, Future Money and the Profit Profit um, of, of course, the Wall Street Players who joined us for that episode. And it's the song Close Your Eyes and Count to Fuck featuring Zach De La Roca of Rage Against the Machine. Now, it's no secret if you've been a long-time listener, that I love Rage Against the Machine, but Zach De La Roca's solo career has been laughable at best. However, <laughs> in this song, it has felt like he's got the energy back. That repeated on-loop chorus of Run the Jewels Fast, of him just looping, and the heavy beat, and then the vocals coming in hard and fast make this track um, unforgettable and constantly stuck in my head. I actually listened to like a five-song set of my catchy songs of the year, and this one kept overlapping everything else. So that's my catchiest song um, because I just can't... I Just talking about it now, I'm hearing that looped beat and looped pseudo-chorus in my head as I'm talking about it. All right, well, this was an interesting category for me because I had an idea that immediately came to mind... And then I sort of left it for a moment because I had to consider the rest of the year being like, wow, actually there was a lot of catchy things this year. Mm-hmm. And even the stuff, it's a tricky category because catchy is almost, we imply that it's for the lighter stuff right. that you can enjoy really easily, mm-hmm. but that it doesn't have to be so overly complex. But why can't it be overly oh, complex? Sure. I have to confess that a lot of the stuff off Prager, off Scattering by Prager was really a contender. But that stuff requires a more in-depth listen very mm-hmm. often, and I think I'm, I'm going to keep it to light. So I threw back to my initial instinct, and my initial instinct brought me back to So Desu Ne off uh, FFS yes, by FFS. So I'm throwing some love to uh, listener picks this year instead of guest picks, because this was by the mysterious Mark H. This song is 
built to be catchy. Each and every component of that track, the hypnotic piano line, the, the hook and the hook synth that bobs back and forth between each and every verse, the, the, the pre-chorus that check your heartbeat, check your blood pressure, it's gonna eat your beans and eat your leisure. I don't know what the hell that means, but I love it. I love it and I can't stop singing it every single time it comes. And and those overlapping synths that, that phase in and out over the, the end of the track, there's something about this where it feels like each and every component was selected to, because of its catchiness, and then was arranged in the most catchy fashion. It's like a catchy Lego sculpture. That That's basically the impact it had. It'd be like halfway through the album, after I was already really enjoying it, this song, when I, on that first listen, right, when, when we did it that week back in episode one, 181, it sent me into a frenzy. Mm-hmm. And each and every time I go back to it, I go back into the same exact frenzy. So... It 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 is easily in the top. I that was that was the runner up. That was on yeah. my five track cue list. That was um, actually a lot of FFS <clears throat> was was fulfilling things like catchiest song, best lyrics, or singular moments and things like that. But but catchiest for me was the one I found to grip me instantaneously. And there was one track that did it best, um, mostly because of just just the way it starts. At low key, uh, very vocal heavy, with a little bit of a beat in the background, a little bit just enough to entice you to what's going to happen. But more specifically, because of a refrain at the end of every verse, "Goodbye Angels" by Red Hot Chili Peppers, off of the album "The Getaway." That that those first lines, "Suicide a month before I met you." Deep regrets I couldn't. Deep regrets I never could forget you. Somehow you made your way to my decade. Ayo, 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 my girl. That line right there, ayo. Those ayos, like, first time I heard it, it's like, okay, cool. Red Hot. They're doing something that I love Red Hot to do. It's something that nice, repetitive, but as the song evolves along with it, that that little just just pivoting vocal thing, it's nothing important. That was enough to allow the evolution of the track and the complexities that kept showing up and the general flow of, of that funky pop they're so good at to really remain rooted on something that started with a word like suicide, that started with something that was deep. And it was a throwback to, to like Under the Bridge or to Parallel, to all the old school Californication songs that are just so ingrained in my memory. Um, side note, I bought my brother that album. Californication because it was one of our favorite albums growing up. I bought him a virgin copy, never run, perfect condition for Christmas. And the first thing he did was throw it on the record. Like he said, oh, this is awesome. And we were listening to it less than five seconds later. Like it's that much of a band that I just love everything they do with their vocals and everything they do with the chords and the and everything. So it's it's hard for me to see anything but Red Hot or maybe Blink. Blink had some contenders, but anything but Red Hot being catchiest. I'm just always going to be drawn to them. And Goodbye Angels was was that piece on that album for me. It's funny. I feel like catchiest is often the one that we are most differentiating on because catchy, what's catchy to you is really dependent on your personal taste and your personality. Yeah. And I feel like that's where we're all split the most. However, I'm going to call it at the beginning of the episode, beginning-ish of the episode, um, that I think this might be the first year we are the most divergent from each other. We'll see if that's true. Perhaps. But I, th- I, I personally think we are going to spread apart a bit. All right. I'll, uh, I'll kick off the next category in this case. Uh, most enjoyable album. 
Let's see if we're we're divergent here, because in many ways this is the catchy equivalent, I think, for yeah. the album scale. It's something that you enjoy despite whether it's virtuosic or not. And it could yeah. be, but that's not a requirement. The requirement is that you just always, it's your go-to listen. When you boot up a CD player, MP3 player, it's your go-to from this year. The, this was, I, I confess, I think I had a very similar reaction uh, to this as I did for Catchiest Song. because It was a kind of a a loop around, but but a little bit different here because this time I really had to make a concession. Mm -hmm. There was no easy answer for me this time because mm -hmm. it wasn't as easy as Catchy Song where I knew, like I said, I described the, uh, the Sodesune as having like Lego blocks. It, it's, mm -hmm. it, it was built to be catchy and albums aren't built to be one thing. They're built to give you many, 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 many things. Yeah. So albums are enjoyable to me in a myriad of ways, which is why there were a lot of close contenders. I think I pushed some aside for the sake of other categories in this list. So I settled on one, and it is a straight-up repeat. FFS by FFS. <laughs> it may be the biggest no-brainer on this list, or may appear that way. The joyous fusion of Sparks and Franz Ferdinand. It gave me a new spin on at least one band that I already knew and loved, that's Franz Ferdinand. And the thing is, supergroups often come across to me as campy. For one thing, often their writing styles clash, and that's not to say they didn't have their issues here, because actually they wrote a song about it. The six-minute rock opera collaborations don't work. But there is not a thing that is done in this album without the idea of keep it fun, keep it cheerful. One of the reasons why I flipped out when Mysterious Mark Gates recommended it is because often our best discussions come from sad and interesting stories. That podcast device you might say often keeps us circling miserable albums by miserable artists. Well, this album just squashed all of that. There's no particular theme. The theme is just two bands trying to make it work in what I believe was a 10-year-long effort or endeavor to finally get together. And they work so, so well. Granted, I like depth and interwoven stories in my music, but one of the reasons why I repetitively say that I like funk on this podcast is really as just a stand-in to say I like music. So there's the taste thing that Matt just said. Franz Ferdinand, mid-2000s indie rock, that, this is my... This is my go-to stuff, I guess, for catchy or enjoyable. Indie rock, much like funk, is a way for me to just say, screw everything else and let's just move, dance, get into a good mood. This album was a hit of cocaine the first time, and it was there when I needed it several times throughout the year. And much like uh, John said, he perhaps needed the heist throughout all of the, the bad times. Well, I needed this. I feel like it kind of took the wind out of my sails because I also chose FFS. Yeah. Like, it's, <laughs> I did. from Johnny Delusional onward, it was just awesome. Um, it didn't get any, like, any worse as the album went along, which was amazing. That was the big thing. Yeah. It like, even Call Girl, in respect, the, stakes. The, the track to Call Girl. Which I think we kind of came to the consensus was the only misstep to from yep. really great to just great, and then they went really great over and over again. Yep. From there, it's the reason why it was a five rating for me. The reason why I didn't change my rating on it. Um, uh, looking back on this year, it was a very early album for us, and I kind of forgot it was in this year, mostly because I've listened to it so much that it doesn't feel like it's been that that. I, we we discussed it. I went with it. All right, we, it's going to be in the in the final year end review. I'm going to use this as part of like the the ammunition I'm doing for the show. No, this just became like an integral part of my music. It just became a part of my soundtrack, and it's it's coupled with really awesome things. So it's something I love, 
and something I think brings so much to the table, I can't not enjoy it. It's just a happy album. All right. Um, I, I guess maybe I'm the only one who's diverging from the pack. Um, so FSS, FFS, spoiler alert, will appear later on my list, but it is not my most enjoyable album for this year. My most enjoyable album for this year is Aesop Rock's The Impossible Kid. I knew it. Which was recommended by uh, Mr. Star F, who we mentioned earlier. Um, it's no secret that I have a, a, a large portion of my music-loving heart is devoted to indie rap. Um you know, I've gotten really into it in the later half of my life, but I'm really into it and I really dig it. And I'm always looking for new artists who even are in more of the mainstream, and Aesop Rock for sure is. Um, and his album, The Impossible Kid, it's just one of those things that the album as a whole is him struggling with his views on the rap community, on his own life, getting older, changing, evolving. You know, personal stuff, um, which is going to come up just shortly after this for me. Um, and so he's kind of been my through line for the year. In the same way, and I think that's the consistency that I was looking for as what we all look for in an enjoyable album, is something that kind of keeps us going throughout the year. Something that we lean on when we're unhappy or struggling or just need something to warm us up or make us feel better and this album was that for me you know i could relate to a lot of the stuff that he was rapping about the one the songs that did make more sense you definitely went more serious with yours yeah. in terms of enjoyable album yeah yeah and whereas in the past and i've done that in the past too i mean 20 remember 21 pilots was also one of my mo my most enjoyable album yeah. and that too dealt with a lot of similar things actually so maybe this is a theme for the later years in my life but absolutely aesop rocks the impossible kid from the beat work to the lyrics to, you know, the things that he was dealing with. It was absolutely my most enjoyable album of the year, and I constantly go back to it. Well, to be fair, like I said, mine was... A ver well, there were a lot of close contenders, sure. which I think I am only pushing to the side because there are other album categories for sure. those contenders. Remember, Same. FFS was so early in the year. It was 181, with a year begins at 176. Yeah. So, at the time, it was easily, you know, the most enjoyable. Sure. But then there were others. So, I uh, let's hold off on those, and uh, someone else can begin the next category. Well, we were, as Matt just mentioned, we, were, we, were, we talked about things like lyrical work and vocal work and all that sort of stuff. And Aesop Rock was a severe contender for a bunch of spots. Vocal work was one, and in this category, best lyrics. It was. Up until a couple of days ago, I was just going to throw a dart at a board and pick one of the tracks. Like, <laughs> I was at that point. Cause yeah. I fear He's me and really John. Good. I feel me and John will be sharing this category. Yeah, Could be because because then oh, Second Relation decided ah. to give me their lyrics, and I loved that album. And then I understood the poetry, and that was something that was extremely gripping on that album, even when I wasn't understanding it, even when mm -hmm. I wasn't quite getting it. But in particular, one track stuck out more than everything else. And once I actually understood the words, I saw a connection between the music and words that was just magnificent. And that was track four, The Essence of the City. It was, it was really a, an amazing usage of just vocabulary to, to paint brushstrokes of a character. And it was really this point. For the first time, she can see the essence of the city. Hidden alleys open in front of her. She's not afraid, and she ventures in. Like a child, she marvels at this new world. I, I, it feels like I'm getting a core 
even Disney-esque kind of story just appearing before me. And to be able to read along with this album now, to really just get into those nitty-gritty little bit, uh, bits and pieces, it's it, it's sort of taking on the character of like Alice in Wonderland. Like an amazing, an amazing story just is shaping before my eyes. And this this was the crux of it to me. This track in particular really did cement that 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 um, rabbit hole that we went on with that album. Yeah, I um, I, all right. So I we are sharing the same category. Here, here, here's the thing for me: there isn't one line that's going to cover this entire category because, of course, my selection I think is borderline the entire manuscript of Eno by Second Relation. This this wasn't as addressed by us during the episode because it was only in spurts that we could actually pick out lyric to lyric because we were a little so we were a little light on lyrics that day because they're not present online. But that said, where they were nice enough to give us the the PDF of the album liner notes and all, with all of the wonderful uh, art and lyrics to boot and now having read this I I I still don't understand 100% of the story. At least I think I'm missing some crucial elements here as I read it over and over and over, but I've come to fall in love with the language that they use to describe Eno and her plight. In short, Eno is an artist, and she's a bit on the misanthropic side. But this is... As as they go through the story here, it's cons- it's not so much about, like, events. It's more about taking her through the the annals of her own mind and and the way her insecurities and crisscrossing one with the other i'm just going to read a little bit here but honestly i think john had a really really good pick because i remember that was one of the ones that i did transcribe a huge portion of and i was i was getting moved just by reading it and it was that 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 end portion of the essence of the city for the first time she can see the essence of the city hidden alleys open in front of her she's not afraid she ventures in like a child she marvels at this new world her eyes reach out for all the magic heads spinning and colors all around her the dark fog of old has been cleared away mental blockades gone the gates of her emotions stand wide open a pleasant storm softly carries her through this new world of experience a heavenly feeling like paradise it's paradise. That part of the of a song that actually started off as an incredibly funky, like it could have been a contender for catchiest song. It really could have because of the way the song started. But then it shifted and it took this turn because it, it's it's so strange how they actually wrestle, how Second Relation actually wrestles with the tone of the music next to the tone of this character and and again the way in which her her mind has just suddenly taken a turn for the worse or taken a turn for the better and later parts of the album things start to really liven up and then they dive down again it's it's insane and sometimes they will spend huge uh, swaths of time just talking about like how terrible this one single thought is and the imagery that they go through black blots that turn into destructive black nebulae she she seems split into two different worlds from the shambles of these many aberrations about to find the right way there's a vague idea of what life could be inspired by her sweet illusory world good god if these guys aren't even English, <laughs> that's that's um, that uh, speaks ill for the Anglophonic nations. I think if that's the case, I love this this album and I I love these lyrics. And now that I have them at my disposal, which by the way, I was gonna buy that thing. I'm only waiting in case Second Relation is listening. I'm only waiting because it's not actually on sale. It's out of stock. It's been out of stock since the day we reviewed the album on Amazon. So maybe I'll have to do the t-shirt package deal. I don't know. <laughs> I probably will. 
But yeah, so in conclusion, I do not have a singular song or a singular line. I read some of my favorite lyrics just there, but there are so many others. Really, the entire manuscript from front to back is a story. It's a story and I, it's, it's, it's like a book of poetry. Not just a singular poem, but a book of poetry, and you need to read it front to back. You wouldn't just take, let's say, a single line from T.S. Eliot. You wouldn't understand, you know, his entire poetry. He, he wrote entire—you should always read the book. That's the thing. Uh, that's the only way you're going to understand the poem as a whole. So, yeah, that's—my uh, conclusion is I'm copping out. All right. Well, fair enough. We've done that in the past, and uh, I think one year I picked, like, three catchy songs. Yeah. So— it may not be my last time I'm coming out here. Oh, way. shocking. <laughs> um, but, okay, so going back to my most enjoyable pick, it does li- link to my best lyrics. And John said himself that this artist was a contender. And for me, it was Aesop Rock. Picking a song was difficult, though. There were some great ones. I mean, Mystery Fish, besides being completely erratic, is still a fascinating lyrical work because it almost seems like nonsense with lines that make sense. And I almost picked that. But instead, I end up going with one that's a little closer to me because of changes to my life this year. And that is Shrunk by Aesop Rock. Because I, as someone who has personally started seeing a therapist, I've gone through these stages that he lists here of waiting room to speaking to the front desk, to the actual session, to the understanding that he needs to go back. And I went through all of those in my first session. Like that was that was a leading piece for me. That was one of the few ones that I think could just stand up as pure poetry. And to take it as this aggressive, almost, you know, attack at the therapist until he kind of, and it's pretty much an attack until the very end of verse three, and then he finally says, "Absolutely, I'm shrunk." As in, mm. he knows he needs it. But I mean, just read some lines from the third verse, which is the actual conflict between him and his therapist. She says, I'm not your enemy. I said that sounds like something my enemy would say instead of playing off the chemistry. She said, you're being difficult. I said, I'm being guarded. You're a quarter mil in debt. I get more guidance from my barber. Look, I'm not good at this. I grew up in a noogie fest. You built your walls up high or say goodbye to all your cookie puss, which I think is great because who doesn't love cookie puss? Uh, yeah. Uh, right? I mean, it's Carvel, yeah, you know? <laughs> Probably the most famous Carvel. Him and, what, what was it, Fudgy the Whale? Um, I don't need enough ice cream. <laughs> it goes on from here. Here's one. Every time my telephone buzzes, I see images of hooded riders setting fire to hundreds. She said, you start getting all expensive and symbolic. It's impossible to actualize an honest diagnostic. And it's so... I'm not going to keep going because I'm having trouble actually keeping up with the pace of the song. But essentially, because he's, he's a wordsmith, I, I, I did most of the reading in that episode, and I had to practice. Yeah. I really had to practice, like off air, just to get it through. But it's essentially, she said, he said the whole last verse until the very end, where he goes, "Oh well, preservation is a doozy. Will you be needing another appointment? Absolutely." I'm shrunk, and it's that moment where you go, "Oh, he gets it. He's struggling." But he absolutely knows he needs to go back. And I absolutely had that. And, you know, it's been very helpful for me to go. But it's hard. People don't, some people do. But I personally don't like talking about myself. Especially when it's focused on my. Really? (laughs) When it's focused on my personal life and intimate secrets. No, I don't like talking about myself. I freeze up. You know, I can be a charismatic center of attention when it's light and fun. But once it gets serious, I tend to clam up and close off. And. I think songs like this are important because it lets you know you're not alone. 
even uh, as conflicted as you are up until the moment of the appointment being over, you're not alone, and that others go through it and to stick with it. And so that's why this this song amongst that album really stuck with me and is my best lyrics for this year. That's a, a good pick. Um, I This may... No, I'm not going to start it off with this may surprise you. I, you said that let's like just, twice already. Let's just cut the chase here. I'm going back to the beginning of the year. Von Nickier by Bjork. For most moving for album. For most moving album. I know this is a little bit strange, but... That album, even though musically I may have had a little issues with it here and there, I you listen to the thing front to back. It was about her divorce, and she divulged a lot on that album. And maybe due to the length of the marriage and also her age, it, it felt especially revealing. But, of course, it's the music that matters, and the music, it really is very unique. And, of, of course, it's unique. It's Bjork. But with the help of Arca, who was working with her, that's Arca from Mutant, uh, worked with her on that album, those string sections that it came up with, the, the something so specific about that album to her plight. I've heard breakup albums before, and they generally don't do anything for me. I, I've heard it all. One more sad chord progression, and I basically just tune it out as background noise. But she keeps your attention as if the entire album was a movie. A dark, torrid view at her pleading, pleading at the one she loves, and then turning her back, and then pleading again, and trying to find some kind of thread of past happiness to hold on to, or to convince her ex-husband. The music conveys this pain, and being that there are also children involved, there is something about this that, in each and every track, I felt her 100%. It actually kind of played through my ears as if it was noise cancellation headphones. Like, I couldn't see the rest of the world. All I could see was her as a very sad person on this album. And for me, that was incredibly moving. And I think it actually did... It allowed me to get into a music style that isn't... It wasn't 100% my cup of tea, and actually even her singing style, which traditionally wasn't always my cup of tea. I used to kind of deride, ah, Bjork, that's the, the, the silly performances that we all remember, and they were always kind of quirky to me. They didn't, they didn't reach out to me specifically, and on this album, I got it. I understood why it matters, because it always feels like she's kind of cracking and breaking at the seams, and because of the circumstances surrounding this and the stuff and the lyrics, it just, it made sense. And it was the only logical uh, answer for me for most moving album of the year in its entirety from front to back. There are other moving songs, but this is the one that makes the whole the whole list. I'm cheating on this one. Okay. I picked two. Nah, that's yeah, cool. Yeah, I got well, I'm, I'm guilty. For two very similar yet almost opposite reasons. Okay. The similarity is because I was able to project myself into both of these albums. Okay. But one of them I, I'm projecting because it's a sad and moving album that I want to be able to live up to because it's the kind of life that feels like it had worth to it. Mm -hmm. And that's Leonard Cohen's You Want It Darker. It's hard to, to, to argue with what he's done in his career, but this last album he has produced, it felt like he was actually celebrating the sadness at times. And that, in and of itself, means that you were happy enough to have those low points. You had those emotions. So the positives and negatives on that album were just very forceful, and they seemed like they were a worthwhile life. That, that's something that you can't take away from someone. Flip side is Arca's Mutant. 
and it's sort of the the more I identify it from my childhood and sort of like the self-recrimination and almost the self-dislike and nearly hatred at parts that seem to be infused in this, especially with the titular track Mutant, where it seems like he's viewing himself so dark and dreary and, and so much of the outsider. That's kind of how I felt growing up. I, I dealt with a lot of problems with uh, depression and manic depression growing up that... I understand a lot of the problems a person has with their self-image, and that's what Mutant showed me, is that there is a lot more out there. There's a lot more expression you can create for yourself. You can create beauty out of even that, that those moments of doubt and those moments of pain without even saying anything. And that was really what, the, what makes it just ever so slightly better than Leonard, is that he does it silently like there's no voice of the author there there is just his expression his sort of tearing off parts of himself and bearing out his soul in that album so those are my two all right well you uh stole my thunder a little bit good Um, i wanted to do that at least once but um i can re (laughs) officially resend my statement that we are not in sync because even when we're not picking the same things our reasoning are leading us to agree with each other which does tend to happen also on this show um but my most moving album is you want it darker by leonard cohen interesting for me so i know it's become a cliche to say i'm the emotional one of the podcast because it's a lot of hooey a lot of the time, because we're all emotional on this show. We've gotten very emotional on the show. I mean, I think the year Steve brought us Sufjan Stevens, Carrie, and Lowell, we all unanimously agreed it was one of the saddest things we'd ever heard. And so it was hard not to be moved by how personal that was. That said, going back to myself, you know, so to say that the album was moving because I'm emotional is not necessarily. However, I will say I have thin skin and I'm easier to emote, I think, than the other two at the table. I think I'm more easily upset than the other two at the table. That could be wrong or disagreed with, too, but that's where I'm going with with Leonard Cohen's album, You Want It Darker. I think after he passed, knowing he passed, and going back to it and listening to it so much, that's what really made it the most moving album for me, because his songs were always moving to me, but listening to this final work by an artist I respected after his passing is really what made it the most moving album of the year for me. You know, the songs themselves are also moving, and my most moving song is a Leonard Cohen song, and I think the whole album is moving, but I think it's my personal connection with the artist that really made it that album for me. And it's connected to, which I will take us into most moving song, which for me was Treaty, off that album by Leonard Cohen. The reprise is pretty is pretty moving, but the initial song Treaty and this plead to just come together, find love again, and move on and just find this resolution that seems to be impossible really hit me in a place that I didn't actually think it would initially. Um, you know, from and it's something about his voice and the, the rawness of it that makes it feel real and passionate and takes me to a place that I didn't think it would. All right. Uh, I'm seeing a lot of love here for You Want It Darker by Leonard Cohen. Um, it, it definitely did arise in my considerations, but I had to really question the reason why it was arising. You know, there's, all right, we, we were talking about this a little bit off air. There's been a lot of death in 2016, at least in the celebrity circles. Mm-hmm. Um, and yeah, it was a fairly 
inappropriate. Yeah, I don't know if that's the word for it, but we did the episode concerning Leonard Cohen's album about what, three weeks, maybe, before he passed? We recorded it, I think, uh, two weeks, but it aired three days before yeah. he passed. And so it inspired me to add a little bit of an addendum, which I rarely do on the original post, just to say, hey, you know, take this episode... Not, I didn't say something like, take it with a grain of salt. I said, look, it's meant to be celebratory. It's meant mm-hmm. to discuss, even though we certainly had a few issues with the album. And I guess, looking back on it, I, 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 I can't rewire my original view of stuff, even based on someone passing. I, I don't know, for some, especially if I don't like know them personally. It's a little bit more difficult for me. But I, I'm not going to lie that there were a couple things on that album which definitely did move me, even even before he passed. Like, no, just knowing that there was, you know, that he was probably singing about the end and that we had speculated that before we actually thought... To, I, I was borderline went in there to retract it because I, I saw another blurb within a couple days after the fact that said something like, oh, no, he's, he wasn't planning to, to, to die. Well, whoever does plan to go. But, right. like, there was something there that he says he plans to live forever and that, that mostly he wants to be taken with a, uh, a grain of salt, you know, when he says something like that, even though he does say a lot of things concerning death because it's just one of his subject matters. But uh, then he did pass, and so then you need to sort of recolor it a little bit. It's just I can't color the music, except for one track, and that actually was the one that you did gloss over, and that was the, the final track. It was the reprise, the string reprise of Treaty, which had... No lyrics, because for some reason I was not as moved by some of the tracks that actually had his vocals. I know that's a really weird, considering that he's no longer with us, but it was actually the reflection of Treaty with just a little bit of his vocals at the very, very end. But that string quartet was beautiful. It was utterly beautiful. I have to say, though, I was really torn between whether it's that track or whether it's something straight off of Vilnicura, because I remember that when we were doing Vilnicura by Bjork, History of Touches, the third track, I think really had me more genuinely moved. And I have to... It, it forces me to question like whether I'm having a genuine reaction or whether it is just because someone passed and I am sad. You know? It, does that affect the music in any way? I, I, I can't... I can't say that with any certainty, so I'm kind of just going to say both of them in a safe, distant fashion right now, because I don't know which one moved me more in a more genuine way, because I don't know what genuine is in this case. Well, that's fair. I think that, you know, we, us constantly struggling with these songs and these albums is why we take so seriously what we do. Which is weird for my choice, because while I may have previewed it with the previous topic, but... I don't think I ever really struggled with the track. I kind of struggled with the concept behind the track, and that is Mutants, Arcas, Mutants, Mutants, the titular track, the second track on the album, seven-ish, seven and a half minutes long. It's a real chunky track, but it was a track about a monster, and I know that we really did see it differently when we reviewed this Piece, that we both came to the conclusion that the monster, if this track was defeated, meanwhile, I felt like the monster was transformed. That at the end of it, you realized it wasn't a beast. It was a, it was a very much a where the wild things are moment, where the fear is gone, and you see the smile around the sharp teeth, and you see the, the acceptance and the beauty in the discourse you see the the ugliness 
and the asymmetrical ideas coming forward and and becoming not ugliness but character and becoming beauty and becoming something better than what they are because of its imperfections. I kind of saw that the first time and it only became more cemented as I was going deeper and deeper into this track and listening to it over and over and over again. One of the things I said about this album was it's not an album I wanted to re-listen to because of how like scary the album was. Mm-hmm. And I think that is partially because of how moving it was for me, how strongly I felt like I connected with it. But I also lied. I listened to it a lot after that first listen. After we reviewed it, I listened to it like two, three times that next week, even though we were doing something else. I couldn't get it out of my head. And it was primarily this track itself that I honed in on and just felt so, so connected to. All right, let's mosey along to favorite singular moment. So this is something that we often have caveats for, but essentially it's our favorite singular moment. It's exactly what it sounds like. It could be a moment in a song. The whole song could be a moment. You know, a whole album could be a moment, I guess, but that would be trickier. I, I'm the one that started the whole a song is a moment kind of a meme. Um, but mine is simply a moment, and it is a moment on an album that's already been mentioned, which is, of course, The Getaway by Red Hot Chili Peppers. That moment takes place in a song that John mentioned, Goodbye Angels, which was a powerful song, as it were. But the final third of the song, essentially, kicks off with an insane bass solo that absolutely transitions into an all-out jam where the bass continues on that line and continues to innovate throughout the end of the song. And, I mean, I think we'd all be lying if we said we didn't come to Red Hot Chili Peppers for Flea. I mean, we all like the rest of the band members, but, I mean, it's Flea. Flea is undoubtedly one of the greatest bassists to ever live. And that bass solo, from what was an otherwise very moving and fairly slow song, w- just put an energy into that song that really kind of just gets your heart flowing. And then the jam doesn't feel like a meandery jam that we get in a lot of jam bands. It really did connect to the solo, fill out the rest of the song, touch on some of the earlier themes in the song and kind of end it very powerfully. So that's my favorite singular moment this year because it got a bassist that I love back in the forefront of my mind and have an awesome jam out moment for a fantastic song. All right, this was a tricky category for me this year because the problem with the category being favorite singular moment is that a moment can be a transition. Yeah. But we have another category called transition. Uh-huh. So how, how do you reconcile between those two? Well, the, the, the way I did it was actually by applying a few transitions here to singular moment, but then expanding my definition of transition when we get to transition. So okay. that's a little teaser for what we're going to get there. But in singular moment, this was still even tricky within the transitions because there were so many good transitions this year. I, I could think of even one recently in Big Trouble uh, in, back in Scattering by Prager. Just recently, two minutes and four seconds that drop into the paradise section, mm. that uh, that A section, that uh, cruising down the, the highway on the, the California beachfront or on the Hawaiian beachfront. Who knows? There's just something so visceral about this section, but it's particularly the moment that where it drops right into it. I can hear that sax solo in my head, or excuse me, the sax melody in my head. And I love that. And then there's if that is a cop out, then I can even just push it a little bit further beyond that to the moment where that saxophone hits the high A mm-hmm. at the top, where it actually begins the phrase again, or where it actually kind of like it 
plateaus and then it starts it over. I, I absolutely love that singular moment. There are others this year, like for instance, there was uh, Labyrinth, uh, the second track off of Eno, two minutes and 22 seconds, which I talked at length about because it was like uh, Second Relation had suddenly fused together with Children of Nova. I mean, I talked at length, I think, enough about that particular transition in that episode that I'm just going to fairly say each of them together are, are, are my favorite. I can't really put one above the other, but uh, maybe since it's more freshly in my mind, that that Prager one, that big right. trouble. So many, so many. <laughs> Mine isn't even a moment on a track. It is the first time I had this moment from this piece. This is also valid. I use Darlings of Lumberland in a similar way. Yes, and it actually is for much the same reasons as Darlings of Lumberland was your choice. And that is the first time I heard... <clears throat> The very first transition from A to B of Collaborations Don't Work mm, by FFS. It's a good one. Purely just going from that nice low key, and it was about, it was in the 40 to 45 second mark. Mm. It goes and there's a symphony, or at least strings. We get yeah. strings. It's like, whoa. And this was an album that was like, first of all, it, it was an, it, an album that was great in its entirety and then kept getting better. So being so late and being like the culmination, like the crux, second to last track on the standard album, it was like, oh, cool. And it was that moment I realized I can actually, I, I found something I can compare to Bohemian Rhapsody. That, That's that, true. I could actually compare it to. Not as good. Still not quite as good. You as heard Freddie the way Mercury. I described it before. That track was like a rock opera. Yeah. And it's the, and perhaps yeah, the only rock opera that we've seen in four and a half years. If I could if I could put it against one of the greatest pieces of art of all time, which for its moment, moment by moment, Bohemian Rhapsody oh, yeah. is like the standard of just the transitions, of yeah, just those absolutely. instances. The first time I heard it, the first time those strings came in and they were just in unison, collaborations don't work with <laughs> with panache, with 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 attitude, with just joy. Yeah, that there's no, there was no other choice in my mind. It's, I feel that song could attain such notoriety had, had if more people were just simply aware of that project. Yeah, because I mean, I never really see it discussed. Yeah, I mean, I also, I, the internet and the echo chamber of popular popular culture as it is, it's hard to know what really hits and what doesn't. True, um, but uh, but that's gonna come up again later for me. So I'm glad you mentioned that track. Now, most innovative album is a little bit on the difficult side to actually discuss because what's innovative? Is it taking multiple genres, throwing them together? Is it coming up with really unusual things or being avant-garde or experimental? Well, we really only had like one experimental album yeah. of the year, and that would be Yugen, so that's kind of a cop-out. Technically, so, it's all of those things. Yeah. It can be. But most innovative album... Is in my mind the album that tries new things and accomplishes good from them. Mm-hmm. So for me, I was going to choose Varmits. I really was. Like it was on my list, but I can't really say anything but Prager because of just the things they try draws from 50 years worth of music. Maybe even more. I mean, there's there's themes that I feel like has been around since jazz was a thing when they were coming up with saxophone noises in 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 the 30s. I mean, there seems to be a little bit of everything over the course of history, even including Werewolf, which is that oddball that has like 
Metal. Why metal? Mm-hmm. Well, you know what? Why not metal? <laughs> Why not do random things with bass and drums and just add extra stuff and just keep throwing on top of it? But the kicker is it's from the mind of one person and two bands. Two completely different lineups that you can really not detect differences between the two. So if you are that lucky to be able to do so many different things with different people doing the same roles and your audience can't tell the difference, I mean, you have to be doing something that's just innovative. All right. Um, it's funny because I'm looking at something that's written down here, and I, I, I don't think I'm going to use it. I, I think <laughs> I'm going to use something different more that I think about this because you you glossed over it, but I think it is Yugen. I really think Yugen is the most innovative. Because here's the thing, varmints is what I had written down. That's what I had written down, that was what I was going to say. <laughs> but, so when I basically am pulling a U here. I said, yeah, I was on the edge of picking varmints. But then I had to think about, Yugen, I don't think it's just, I don't think it didn't accomplish anything. That's where I'm going to disagree with you. Yugen did accomplish something. It actually accomplished a lot. I just don't think, a lot of people probably aren't going to listen. That's the problem, mm. is that because it's so scary, it's so, like, Varmints is absolutely innovative. It really, really is. It's just that because we happen to look at one really, really effing weird album, which is Yugen, then I, I just have to push it a little bit above Varmints. Varmints accomplishes a lot for everyone. Yugen accomplishes probably tenfold more but for a very narrow few. That's still worth mentioning. Because here's the thing. You can, it's, it's hard to even compress that album. It's a, new, it's, it's a new kind of composition, but it's also a new kind of album structure. A lot of it is based on impulse, but there is definitely organization there. And I was really wrapped into Yugen the first time around. I was a little bit tentative, but then it, it quickly brought me in because there is something about the, the jerky like, uh, aggressive nature of it that I think I saw what was wildly new and I was entranced by it. I was attracted to it. And, and I can't deny that looking back on it. There's other stuff that I may enjoy objectively more, but this is probably on the cutting edge of everything we've done this year. Probably too much for its own good. All right. So the one I have written, it's funny, because of the shift that Steve made, I'm tempted to shift mine too, because the one I have written down, I feel like is an innovative, which is Mutant by Arca. I think it's innovative because of the age of the artist creating it and all of the things he's able to do with self-expression. You know what? I'm going to stick to mine. I'm not going to change it. Varmints also was up there for me. And listening to you talk about it reminded me of how much I thought it was innovative as well. But I'm sticking with Mutant by Arca because I think, A, his age, and B, he's taking a format that's been used before, but he's using it to do self-expression because there's a bit of self in this, as we discussed, in this monster, as it were. At his age, to be able to express that through this form of music in that way to such effectiveness, I think that's innovative. While the music itself might not have always been innovative at every moment, the way he used it to express what he was personally feeling and how well it was communicated and how well we were able to discuss and pick it up, I think is what makes that album innovative because it's innovative in self-expression specifically. and so Self-portraiture if even. Even, yeah. yeah. And so I think that arises above Yugen, who you said, and you're right, is very musically innovative. But expression-wise, 
I don't even know where to start with it. And so I think that's what pushes Mutant by Arkra past it for me. But that said, I can't disagree with anything you said. So I stick with that for Mutant because, again, I, I was able to relate through music that I don't typically like and still understood. All right. Let's go to best vocals on the song scale because, of course... Vocals, you can have great vocalists, but sometimes it's just one particular song that shows off their vocals in a very, very specific way. And uh, this was, I had to bring in this one artist for this one category, uh, and for this one song in particular, Claire Maguire. Mm. Claire Maguire, episode 206, and the track Falling Leaves. Yeah. Falling. <laughs> yeah. I can remember. Uh, mm-hmm. There was a bit of Shower Warden in this. It's honestly, so much control, uh, a unique gem on this album, set against the backdrop of this big, burly piano. Her range here was just stirring. She starts off the song in this low, almost husky register, and then occasionally pops up to the top and just belts it. But it's almost just as powerful when she's really low and really, really soft. I remember that, that, that quiver sometimes when she just goes beyond that falling, falling lee, and there's that le- final mm-hmm. syllable leaves. There's just a, a quiver that I can't describe. I know it's a vibrato, but it's, oh, it's not like any other vibrato. It, there's a there's a, a timbre there that I, I cannot put into words, because she did. Why do I have to? She was a contender. Um, I do have to, I do have to go for somebody that might technically be less qualified for the role, I guess, of best vocals. On hey, a song. I was I wasn't even sure if she was qualified for the role because I had to think about like if I thought about her as an artist, the album as a whole did not show off her vocals in every single instance. But, but that, that was a unique case yeah. and this category does concern us all. But for me, the best vocals were was a song that matched up with the lyrics and the vocalist himself. And the expression of the vocals is what made it Kind of like a perfect little storm of of connection, and Anthony Kiedis is like mm. really hard to argue with. Sure, like he's not the best. He's never really going to be the best, but he's really, really good at his job. He's a solid vocalist through and through. He's always been. And the longest wave is mm. like the crux of that vocal expression that on that album. That song was a contender for so many song moments, song related categories this year because longest wave was one of those songs. And, and and another one of those opening lines, throw me all around like a boomerang sky, whatever you do, don't tell me why. And that, mm-hmm. that little hiccup he does, don't tell me why. And, 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 and I'm grooving. I'm with it. I'm in the longest wave. I'm going to be with him the entire time on this track because he just sucked me in right away and I'm done. You know, I'll give an honorable mention, only because not, not to that specifically, but only because you brought up like if, if best vocals is the meter, you know, in which they sing, or the way in which they kind of send you into a groove, then I think I'm going to give an honorable mention to uh, Aesop Rock for the very first track there, because I can remember even just reading his vocals, that there was something about the skip step that I have not heard from any other rapper, any other vocalist since. There's something there that I think is... Uh, Honestly... I, I need to mention alongside it because it's such a different category in mm-hmm. many ways in terms of what you do with your vocals. Mm-hmm. And I think it should be... I, I think it actually should be another category for next year because... Mm-hmm. We don't tend to think of rappers as being the best vocalists, 
but I think Aesop Rock has turned me around on that. If you perceive, if, if you perceive vocals differently, right? Like even Maiden Heights was in contention for parts of some of their tracks. Even um, even Chance the Rapper, I was I was I was getting into some of his stuff. Like he he does do solid rap. Work. He's a and great Aesop, singer and rapper. Aesop Rock is just like scary good, but scary is still a word I'm using for him. <laughs> Well, if you guys are done... You should probably say best flow next year. I think that should be flow. a category. Sure. Because um, you can have musical flow as well as vocal flow. Yeah. You, you know. But uh, well, if, you do, if you're both done, you know, kind of waggling all your post and pre-choices, I I'll so. do mine. So mine, I think it might surprise you guys, but when I mention him, it'll, it'll be kind of obvious because he is an incredible vocalist who hasn't missed a beat since we reviewed him. And he hadn't been around for a while which is Rick Astley. His vocals on that record, to me, were, first of all, as strong as his older vocals. And I think he does some things that have a um, consistency and a solidity that I really liked in his vocals. And it's for his first song, the, the, the intro track on his record, Keep Singing, uh, for his album 50. It's just the way that he goes from kind of singing more freely to speaking to carrying high notes, vibratos, low. The fact that he has this versatility, both in that song and on the record, is why he is probably my one of my favorite vocals, vocalists this year. That said, you're absolutely right about Anthony Kiedis. He's a solid vocalist, but I think there's a, a regularity to how he sings. He has a few traits. That was actually the draw of it yeah. because of that regularity. And, and that's, and that's perfect. Which is weird because I usually go the opposite route. Right. That's perfectly reasonable, but I think it's why I knocked him out of it because I was like, well, he has these three tricks and they're great tricks, but he always uses them. Whereas Rick Astley even surprised me because I was expecting <clears throat> Never Gonna Give You Up Again and he even has bridged and grown past that and he still has he it. He rickrolled you. He rickrolled me. There you go. But he has very solid vocals. And it's it's that first verse that he delivers when I was a boy, I saw my dad and just the way he delivers it, almost like a preacher delivering to an audience. A sermon. A sermon even. Yeah, giving a sermon. It made me even think it was religious when it wasn't. He's using music as his religion essentially here. And I think it's just the delivery gave it such passion and warmth that I really gravitated towards it. And that was all his lyrical div- Delivery, because the music, so for the most part in that track, was pretty straightforward. So that is my best vocals song for this year. Now, this next category is a little contentious, because we were going to call it just straight up most virtuosic song. But that's a hard thing to really pin down. So we're going to backpedal just a little bit to an earlier version of it, to most technical song. The one that we found to be just maddening. And I think I'm speaking for all of us, I think, when I say that there's going to be Prager almost across the board. That's going to be a component. And I'm going to keep my virtuosic Celeste technical because I have a point to make there. Okay. But for me, it was specifically Prager's Big Trouble. Because everything that happens during that track is integrated. And a lot of things happen during that track. And it was like A, B, C, D, lots of primes, lots of combinations. It was just flow. Really halting and jerky flow that was surprisingly smooth. It was amazing what they did with all the different components. And it was awesome. Like I can't say anything else. For me... I'm also, like Steve, keeping the most virtuosic slash technical song because for me, it's also a Prager song. But this is the first time that Prager shows us how virtuosic they are. Their intro track, 
aptly titled Prelude. You kind of just fall into that track and it's great and it's catchy and it's very easy to engage with, but I don't find it virtuosic. But from the moment the song that I chose, Transit Starts, which is track two, you get a sense for how virtuosic this band is and how technical they can get from the drums to the synth to the sax, all of it. And so for me, to not be too long-winded about it, since Steve seems like he has a lot to say. Um, And also because I don't want to undersell it by trying to explain it, I think that Transit is the first time you really get to see how virtuosic they are. And so that's why, for me, it's my most virtuosic track, because it's the entry level. It's when you get into it. And though they may do some crazier stuff later, that's the moment you first realize exactly how that's the case. So you think I'm going to be long-winded, huh? A little bit. I mean, typically you are, but if you're not, surprise me. We'll move on to the next category. Well, when I was a boy, I... (laughs) Please don't. (laughs) All right. No, this category made me consider just one crucial thing. This has never come up before uh, in our selection of albums of of the year. Mm -hmm. The difference between jazz performative style and classical performative style Mm, is actually two very different types of virtuosity. I was watching this. There's a really, really wonderful uh, YouTube channel by this guy, Adam Neely, who's a local bassist in uh, in New York City, and I, I actually really love to have him on as a guest sometime in the future because he seems like a pretty fascinating guy, and he has a YouTube channel where he talks a lot about music theory and being a jazz bassist, about his gigs and all about different performances. He, he gives private lessons, all these different things, and he explained that there is actually a difference in keeping in the way jazz musicians keep rhythm versus the way classical musicians keep rhythm, both of which are two different types of virtuosity. Now, I'm going to say it bluntly, Prager is really a jazz album. Mm-hmm. I think we kind of sidestepped around that. Yeah, we called it as like, hey, jazz inspired, but it's prog really. But I think it's more like prog inspired, but it's jazz. Mm-hmm. There were enough solos there and everything. I, it, it's, and they, they, tr- they function like jazz musicians. And mm-hmm. so it's got that virtuosity, in which case I cannot pick a specific thing. <laughs> I guess in this case, I am kind of omitting technical a little bit because I'm just sort of saying virtuosic. They're virtuosic up and down. There's really no rating them. I've checked. I've thought about this. I flat out refuse to rank those tracks. <laughs> okay. Even the ones that I prefer, they're all equally virtuosic. But there's one other thing that I'm throwing in here, and that is Yugen again. The first track, though, and this time I will be specific, <clears throat> cynically correct Mm. because that one I can single out on that album as being particularly virtuosic but it's for the classical reason and the funny thing is it's not really you'd listen to that you'd actually think it's more jazz and even metal at times and that it's not really classical but it's structured like a classical piece and it's performed like a classical piece you could see pictures of them all sitting there with their sheet music it's all pre-composed material and it's fascinating in that case it does fall under both virtuosic and technical and so yeah kind of copping out again there, but I think I made my point clear. You're copping out a lot, but I'll allow it for now. Yeah, yeah, as long as it's point is We had a lot with. of four, seven, five, and higher albums this year. It's hard to start differentiating Each and every year, it's going to get more complex as you get a new set, and we're going to have to sort of revise these honorable mentions. I think so, too. But uh, let's move on to, as we start to approach, the best, the worst, and then the very best. And that starts with Best Album Theme. This is the pair of Best Album Theme and Best Album Arc, which we keep together because they tend to play into each other or are completely separate from each other, depending on the album we choose. And so I'll start with mine, which is an album that has not had any shortage of mention on this uh, show so far. And that is Best Theme for me is Eno by Second Relation. And I think that's kind of obvious here. I mean, Steve's right. If you read the lyrics... Which, again, Simon, thank you for sending us that PDF. If you read that, 
it is a story. It's a full story. And I enjoy that narrative a lot. And I was able to enjoy it even more when being able to read it. And it's allowed me to go back to that album more and more and listen over and over again. But it's, it's a very tight theme. It's a story of Eno and how that story takes shape can diverge from track to track. It may not even be perfectly cyclical, but in the end, it's a story of a girl and everything about her life. And so that's for sure the tightest theme we've had this year. You know, I was tempted to argue that Prager was a tight theme by not being a tight theme, but I ended up going for the low-hanging fruit because it's the most delicious and fascinating fruit one of, at least, that we've done this year. So again, Eno by Second Relation is my best theme. Eno by Second Relation is giant ditto mark for me yeah. because Eno, I, I pretty much explained this when I did lyrics, and I explained yeah. it in kind of a convoluted fashion, but you're not going to get closer to my opinions on that album on this episode. You're only going to get it on the episode in which we discussed Eno by Second Relation. Sure. And, and even not to the fullest extent, because again, we didn't get cl- as close to the lyrics there, but we got close enough, and frankly, whether we got those album liner notes or not, I would have probably called it the best Mm -hmm. theme. Because for me, it really is a thing that transcends lyrics. It is a thing that can incorporate music. uh, Musical themes. And there are a lot of musical themes there that cross over. There are a lot of different sides to them. And it goes through so many different just loops and then pauses. And it's it's a story. The whole entire thing is both a musical story and now we can see quite clearly a lyrical story as well. And I think it is the strongest story of the year with really... No, no close second. Everything else is more like its own experiment, mm-hmm. and it very fascinating experiments, but none as tight as the story that is Eno by Second Relation. And my choice is really weird compared to what you two just said, because I'll, I'll 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 go actually go with Ark right now, and say Eno was my choice there in Ark, hmm. and it was primarily because the story was present and it was a very strong theme. But it made the music feel like it was naturally flowing to a whole new extent so that the beginning through the end, the actual progression track by track, felt nearly perfect. Felt like it was meant to be after a while. That you had to go from one to the next to the next to the next. But I could not get away from Arca's theme in in Mutant. Mm. I could not get away. It impacted me as my most moving album without words. It impacted me as the most moving track of the year without words. I could not get away from just the 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 as I said earlier, the 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 tearing off bits of yourself and showing them to the crowd nature of that album. Just just the idea of burying your soul and burying your heart and burying your brain and really throwing your emotions out there without needing to say anything. I felt like I was really getting him. I was really getting an individual and connecting with it. And me rebuilding him through the music and seeing the picture was one of the most interesting things I got to do this year. I couldn't really argue with you because what you're describing is why I thought it was very innovative. And so, you know, and it was on my list for for best album theme. It just ended up not being the final choice. So I totally get that. Um, And since you've already spewed your arc all over us, wow, that sounds awful. Um, But we're going to keep it anyway because I'm going to keep talking so Steve can't edit it out. I guess I will mention my best album arc, um, which I alluded to previously, which is, of course, Scattering by Prager. 
honestly, I I struggle to find a more solid arc. I mean, the and as much as Steve joked about it in the review, the ludes, as it were, prelude, interlude, and postlude, really set up that album to be really strong. And then Werewolf coming after uh, postlude just even more so solidifies the arc because it's an afterthought. It's a here's something else we do besides that solid arc. Here's an afterthought, which still is part of the arc because it's supposed to be an afterthought. So I I struggle to find anything tighter than that. And it was a tight album from beginning to end to begin with. So musically, you know, there were no lyrics, but musically for sure, it was it was probably the, to me anyway the tightest arc we had all year. Arc may have been the toughest category for me this mm-hmm. year because I think we had really strong arcs. I would agree. I I it was almost at a, like a perfect tie between you know, by second relation is just matching both sure. theme and arc as well. It's a great musical experience front to back. Um, and also Varmints by Anna Meredith. Sure. Because, honestly, just that opening fanfare. Da, 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 the brass. Mm-hmm. It's yeah. it's so captivating. It begins like a parade and it ends. And the more I talk about it, I think might maybe it's going to take it. I don't know. <laughs> I don't know. But then also there's Prager. And, mm. and Prager has its own... Uh, I'm tossing it up right now, and I think I'm going to just... Progress got to make it somewhere in this list, but... Nah, if I'm going to be honest, I think it's going to be... It is going to be Varmits. It's going to be Varmits. Because I think for many of the same reasons is why you love Progress arc. Mm-hmm. And I do love Progress arc, but here's the thing. Those those interludes, right? The way it's broken up by the prelude, by the interlude, and by mm-hmm. the postlude is kind of like how Varmints is broken mm-hmm. up by the very, very few tracks in which there are vocals which tend to coincide with the few tracks that actually are a little more low-key. Because mm-hmm. most of that album is brash as all hell, and I love it for it. But there are few key moments that you just need to breathe, and I think it makes the whole experience very invigorating. Mm-hmm. So yeah, I'm sticking with Varmints for my favorite arc. All right. Going on to best opening of an album, which is, of course, paired with best closing of an album. You see what we're going for here. Yes. Um, And I am going to continue to celebrate one of our late entries to the year, which Steve brought. And I'm tired of Steve bringing albums I like. Knock it off. But... I'll try. (laughs) Best opening of... This year, I'll just stink. How about that? (laughs) Yeah, right? Um... But seriously, best opening of an album for this year was absolutely Prelude. As far as what we're looking for in the start of an album, like it absolutely sets the tone. It doesn't show all the cards. That's what Transit is for. And uh, I don't have much to say on it other than, like we discussed with the Prelude and the Interlude, you're kind of dropped into something that seemed like it existed already. And that's a great way to, if done right, to get into an album, especially an album by a band you've not heard before. So that's my opening of an album best pick. I was a little afraid that Steve was going to steal mine. Because <laughs> um, he just did talk about it, and it's 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 uh, Anna Meredith, Nautilus. Mm. Like, that's like... I mean, it, that was a contender. It's a strong... Uh, like Steve said, it's that brass. It's not just strong. Like, uh, it, first a off... brass phantasma. And yeah. it's in my list here. I don't know if I'm... I, no, I'm and not going to use I it. I felt obligated to make sure she got mentioned, considering <laughs> she went up a lot for me this year. Mm-hmm. A full half star. There are so many ties for me, honestly. Yeah. But, but you go continue. Like Johnny Delusional was in contention, like because it's just FFS cool. I mean, it there was a, it was a prelude cool was open. in contention. Mm-hmm. Um, 
really basically everybody we've been raving about. But Anna Meredith did something really like special with Nautilus. Like it was the most obnoxious sound I've heard in so long I that love was it. just so beautiful yeah. at the end of the day. It should have been like this is this is terrible. I'm never gonna listen to it again. Blah. No, no. It's just right at that that level of how loud it is versus how annoying it is. But it doesn't come off as annoying at the end. Like it was, it was a, a combination of obnoxiousness that instead was endearing. Yeah. And it, it's how she started. It's yeah. how she introduced herself. Obnoxious but endearing. And I can't argue. I can't. Okay. Cool. <laughs> okay. Uh, yeah, I, I swear that Varmints by Anna Meredith was like really holding this for a long time. I, I, I'm going to just call it. I think this episode has so many ties for me. It is really just going to become about me. It's, it's going to turn into me making points. I want to make unique points about specific things. If they're not exactly fitting like the winning category, I don't really care anymore. I really don't. Because John made the point. I kind of made the point. Yes, Varmints has a fantastic beginning. I almost feel that it's too easy. It's too easy to pick Varmints because she just literally grabbed you by the head mm -hmm. and started rattling you in the beginning. It's just a bit too easy for me to pick it. I'm going to pick something that was surprising for me because it surprised me. Mystery Fish off Impossible Kid by Aesop Rock. I, I fully support that pick. I described this very, very strongly in that episode because of the way it begins. The futuristic plane landing in the beginning, exploding at 27 seconds in with the beat, and then this sudden stop, this halt. The vocals don't even start until around 40 seconds. I believe I said at the time that I've never been drawn into a rap album quicker or been more fascinated by it. And incidentally, this was also the same exact track where not even more than 30 seconds after this, we get those wonderful halting vocals that I mention him for that I think should easily go under best flow where I pretty much put it under best vocals alongside uh, Claire McGuire. But considering you get all of that really within the first minute, minute and a half, that's not even close to the best rap album introduction that I've ever heard. It just, it, it is soared above it. I think it'll be holding it for years to come. So yeah, and also it's from music and rap standpoint. So I'm going to just say that and just hold off for, I, I mentioned varmints for enough things and <laughs> it's too easy to say, hey, that brass. <laughs> and with best closing, I'm actually going to go to my favorite arc of the year, Eno, and say Secondhand Life was just a culminating Damn you. point. Interesting. It was just a culmination of so much. I wanted to know the rest of the story after this track. Like it was, it was, I want a sequel. Like that much enticement. I want to know where she's going to go from this because secondhand life and, you know, picking herself up and moving forward and de after dealing with so much everything, so much life, now she has to move on. Like, where is that? That's, that's the, that's the ellipsis that I need more of. So for making me want so much more, I have to call that the best finale. And I'm jumping in with John right here because that too was my best closing of an album, which was, as he mentioned, Secondhand Life by Second Relation. It's just, I think what's, what made it powerful for me is it wasn't an ending. It was an ending to that specific story, but not to her life or her story. And there's so many albums that have to do with a struggling protagonist, female, male, doesn't matter. It just, there's an end. Either they die, or they give up, or, or they... Or they're happily ever after. Right. And this didn't have that. It, it came wasn't... to conclusion, this moment, this scene had ended, 
But there's more to her story. Honestly, if there was a sequel to Eno, if they just did Eno 2 and it was more of her story, I would totally, totally dig that. But yeah, I'm with John. I think it was a strong way to end an album without having finality. Because there are so many albums we do year after year that have finality. I was so glad to have one that didn't. Okay, that was one that really fascinated me that both of you picked the end of Eno because I, I granted that I, I love Eno, but Secondhand Life, that was a track that, that I, it, was in, it was a good finale, but I didn't think it was like the best closing of an album ever. It was interesting that you picked that. It you was the ellipsis of nature of it. Yeah, well, I, you made a good point, at least as far as like the story wrapping mm-hmm. up. Uh, um, all right, I'm going to go for something completely different. I'm going for Weeds off of Monument Builders ooh, by Lossal. Nice. That's a good one. The whirring vocalist thing, the fluidity of that track is almost enough to make me not want it to end. But it's a phenomenal climax. At full volume, that last track there is stirring. And then there's just that exhale, that release right at the end. I think it was a great culmination because really this album was so slow and creeping. It had all those long oscillations drawn out. And then all of a sudden, it's like it all just came to fruition. It just con- Condensed into weeds. It was a, a, a track that I never expected because the album as a whole I thought was going to be kind of plodding, and some of it was very plodding. I had a lot of nice things to say, but I expected nothing like that out of the final track. That track with all the overlapping vocals was was it was like how I would imagine the universe to end under certain theories that exist on how the universe might end. Not the big rip theory, not the not any of that stuff, but actually the 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 one where it actually expands and then condenses again, it would be that chaotic so not, in the last not phase. heat death. No, the not heat one. death. No, not heat death, the other one. The one the, where basically all... The expansion goes, contraction because yeah. gravity over overpowers all Contracts and then suddenly there's a new Big Bang and theoretically it could be just a, a giant cycle. You don't know. Yeah. You don't know. I, I, I like that one. That one's kind of cool. Yeah, and I, 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 and I like this one. I like weeds <laughs> off Monument Builders because it was just so unexpected. All right, let's go on to our final pseudo-best of before we get to those booby prizes. Um, And this is Best Transition, which we were hinting at before. And um, as we had said, it could be a transition between songs, a transition within a song, transition between moments within a song. But for me, the best transition, and I don't know how I could pick anything else, was for sure within moment-to-moment of a song, and that's Collaborations Don't Work by FFS. It's just every single transition to a part A, part B, part C, all of these different genres and styles, it just, it works so well and so perfectly, even in halting stark moments, because it adds to the humor and irony of that song, and that people saying collaborations don't work and that they're a gimmick and any of that. And so that is absolutely my best transition because from every section to the next, the song works and continues to entertain and be engaging. Specifically, one minute, 52 seconds in when the dark piano shows up mm-hmm. and they go, collaborations don't work. You start dark off deferential and strangely reverential. You both feel it's essential. And then they keep going on, and it gets a little bit more brooding. But then it goes right back to the chorus afterwards, which yeah. is bright and shiny and still freaking works. Yeah. I mean, that's one of the draws of Bohemian Rhapsody is how different and, and still cohesive every little bit is. That's why this track is a close contender of that level. Yeah. It's because it can do 
different things and still find a chorus that is oddly separate yet still works. I can't. I'm, I'm total agreement. Awesome. Um, I am not in total agreement. Because, well, if you recall what I said before about the whole difference between best moment and best transition, I came up with the track, well, I didn't come up with it, the composer came up with it. Basically, this track is responsible for changing my definition of what a transition is. Okay. Scrimshaw by Anna Meredith. Okay. We actually had a bit of an argument on this one, me and you, John. This was one of the one, ones where I think we were the most heated... And it was because of this transition, in fact. But this track, to me, is absolutely scintillating. And it's because of the lead-up to two key transitions. So I'm going to get a little bit emotionally here for this track because it was so moving. They're not specific moments, as we discussed in the earlier category, but slow transitions. Blending of two sections that actually last a certain length of time. The contortion of those slides, of those glissandi, these overlapping glissandi, a strange, brassy, stringy stretching, beginning at a minute and 42 seconds in and lasting through a minute and 53 seconds. That's about 11 seconds there of dramatic stretching, like tuning an instrument up to infinity, erupting in this ecstatic convulsion, which is tantamount to the track's chorus, as it were. Now, this may be in my top transition of all time, at least I'd say that. I'd say that I'd never heard a more smoother and more satisfying transition, except that that's not all. She does it again, but this time she does it a little differently. These larger, more room-filling synths are what's used later in the track, after an interlude, but then they're accompanied by staggered glissandos from 2 minute 51 seconds to 2 minute 57. And then from 3 minutes to 3.10. Each and every time we hit a new plateau, we slide upward in those intervals, and then we plateau between those intervals. Just amidst the chaos, periodically cranking up the heat, glissandos to plateaus to glissandos, dramatizing what we experienced earlier in the piece. 3 minutes 17 to 2.21. 3 minutes 27 to 3.30. Each and every one of these is another stretch. It's like someone actually had a knob and was controlling the intensity of your goosebumps. I have never heard a composer who had such physical control over me. And then finally, 3 minute 33 seconds, it just capsizes. Another ecstatic convulsion, more intense. It's not even the same as the earlier one. The melody is spazzing out. Everything is spazzing out. I was spazzing out. And that's why that's my favorite transition probably of all time. It beats all the previous ones in the year in reviews. Wow. All right. Well, thank you for elaborating. Because uh, it does definitely sell it. Yeah. Um, from here, we are going to go on to our booby prizes. And we're going to move pretty quickly through here, even through our winner, winner's finger quotes of the year, best song and best album, because I have a feeling it's going to be stuff that we've already talked about previously. But let's start with Most Ubiquitous, which for me was Everybody Wants by The Struts. It was just an album that was completely feh. Um, Katie Bug was a delight to have as a guest, and even in the end, I believe she agreed as well. The it album was. as a whole, fair. So that's my most ubiquitous. Oh, you know what album? It it was the appropriately named Post Pop Depression by Iggy Pop, because I got that. <laughs> like we we listened, it was meh, and I kind of just went okay. And that was the extent of my emotional reaction to it because I didn't see anything that would really differentiate it from everything 
<laughs> Steve? <laughs> Mine is the most inappropriately named The Great Unknown by Rob Thomas. <laughs> I'm sorry, but it is extremely known and extremely familiar. Apart from the first track, which I think was solid, the rest of that album was extremely manufactured. I would never be able to pick that album out in a crowd. I, I just, I, it went right over my head. It, it's that first track, which I'm sure was put in the album as like the big single, and then, oh, well, they'll just keep listening. They'll sell them, they'll buy it, but I don't think there much effort was put into anything else. And now on to Best Attempt, which isn't 100% a booby prize. It's like you did something that was just shy of being great in a lot of ways. Um, I do have two. One is Blink-182 California because they tried to be Blink again and they got really close. And the other one is Losil Monument Builders, which was like a really enjoyable and honestly was in contention for most enjoyable album of the year. But I think it was just missing one little it factor to really pump it up and put it in... 484950 territory. Well, I want to point out that best attempt, that category has actually shifted its definition over the years. In yeah. fact, I remember, I can't recall what it was, but I, I really stretched the definition of that to a very specific degree for whatever I chose last year. Because mm. best attempt, it really doesn't, like, in part, it sounds insulting. Oh, that was a nice try. How cute, right? But then other parts are like, oh, no, it was great. It was just short of, of completely wowing me, right? And it sounds like it's really complimentary. Uh, so I'm somewhere in the middle this time. This is more of a standard definition that, for me, it was just, it could have been so much better. And for me, that was the Vice Quadrant. So this is where the Vice Quadrant falls in, like Matt described before. It really was kind of a train wreck, but it, and maybe there was no way it couldn't have been because of the fact that there were so many tracks. It was a double album. It was 24, it was very 25. Lofty. It was a lofty It goal. was extremely lofty, and considering they write so frequently as it is, they come out with about an album a year. It's like, oh, now we're going to have a double album? Like, you can slow it down a little bit, all right? <laughs> just a little. But just for the sheer fact of the hype concerning it, I mean, like, oh my god, Steam Power Draft has a double album. It was ambitious, perhaps too ambitious, and clearly they did a lot of songwriting to churn it out, but the best stuff, as I recall, was very early on disc one, and there's a lot more album left. And it was just a case of being stretched far too thin, which is a shame because I think the grandeur of the project just got lost along the way. So, good attempt. I wish them to never lose their ambition, but this was just a bit too much, especially following Mark III. My best attempt and it's typically been, is a band that I like and that I continue to listen to, but the album just kind of missed. And for me this year, that was Death of a Bachelor by Panic at the Disco. I think as a whole, I still really enjoy the album, and I liked what he was going for as pop, far as pop music goes, and my love of it grew when I saw them live. But as far as an, a pop album, we've just heard some pop albums that did so much more with the same constraints. So for me, that's best attempt. Most disappointing. This was a heartbreak for me this year because I was, like, hyped. Yep. I was totally into it. It was going to be great because they were producing, you know, the Two Cent Show and Mark Three, and then Vice Quadrant. And I was uh. like, oh, damn, why'd you do Vice Quadrant? Because I love Steam Power Giraffe. I really do. The vocals are still amazing. They probably will always be amazing as long as they take care of themselves. But it was just... Two did they they shooting starred this one they burned mm. bright and fast on it that like like you said best attempt I think most disappointing is most appropriate because it's really just 
a couple of tracks in the beginning. I wanted to to lower this album, but I, at the end of the day, I got enough out of my rating at a four. But it's like I gave a five star band a four rating. It it hurts. Yeah. Well, I have to remember. I I did. One of the reasons why I raised Power More is because I realized that that was a single album of 17 tracks, which yeah. is almost close to the same amount. And really, I think almost every single track on that album serves some purpose. Sure. And uh, so, yeah, I, I don't know. I, I think I was pretty low in the three. I was in the mid threes, I think, for Vice Quadrant. Probably fair ratings where I'll keep it, but mis- most disappointing. I didn't have the same expectations for you for Vice Quadrant, so that wasn't as disappointing for me. I was disappointing, but I- here's a different one. Iggy Pop. Huh. I I don't know what I expected from Iggy Pop, but not this. Maybe it's because I am not that familiar with Iggy Pop's work. Granted, that's kind of silly to like look at his latter day stuff as the introduction to his work. Yeah. I know that's not really fair. But this really could have been, it's almost interchangeable with the best attempt category because really I think he was trying to come up, he was trying to come to terms with the concept of irrelevancy as an aged pop star, which really could have worked wonders in the same way. Cohen's material touched on that just a little bit. But there was an obvious listlessness to Iggy Pop's record, Post Pop Depression, as you'd expect from that theme. But that's just the pace of it. I mean, the pace of it is listless because he feels like he's past his time. And maybe as intentional as it may have been, it just wore on me. I want to take a nap halfway through every single song on that record. Yeah, I... Very uh, disappointing. I, it's funny, because both of the ones that you mentioned could be considered disappointing, and I have have or will mention those at some point during this episode. But for me, most disappointing was what John touched on just previously, which is, of course, California by Blink-182. I was just, as someone who has really liked their newer albums, and, you know, a lot of other people had not, I liked the direction they were going. I think California was the most disappointing, because even though they had a brand new band member, a member who has an experienced punk pop musician on his own right, and they still didn't continue to evolve. They regressed back to their older sound. And I, I like the growth. I like the change. I think they rested on their laurels and tried too hard to recapture the moment, as it were, mm. and, and bottle that lightning again. And so for me, Blink was the most disappointing because I really expected more out of it, and I didn't get it. Wow. All right, I will lead us on into Worst Song, and I am going to condense it with Worst Album because for me... They are by the same artist. I'm going to do the same thing. So for me, it, the worst album of the year is Post Pop Depression by Iggy Pop. Ah. And the worst song on that said album is American Val Halla because it is emotionless, lifeless, and useless. As that record goes, also, I mean, Steve really hit the nail on the head. He, There's a struggle here, and in the lyrics you get it, but he assembled some of the greatest modern musicians we listed them, Josh Homme being one of them. Yeah. And it still seemed plain, boring, and vanilla. And I like vanilla ice cream, personally. But it just, there was no flavor here. There was nothing to latch on to. It felt listless, aimless, and useless. And it's a shame to say that about Iggy Pop, an artist I do really like. 
All right, I'm just gonna pull the same thing as you. Not the same album, but basically the same. Uh, I'm gonna lump them together I, because for me, it the worst album is Everybody Wants by the Struts. It was brash and obnoxious, and honestly, way past its time. Like that, that it was arena rock, really, and it wasn't even really fun arena rock. It was like dull arena rock. I would only go back to arena rock for the biggest stuff. You know, the biggest stuff that I could at least say, hey, that, that was at least something that was really, really 80s, really big and, you know, reached <laughs> out to a lot of people. It's arena rock, so of course it's got to be big. But nothing on this was anywhere near that. I could tell they were trying with each and every track, and it just was like, oh, come on. I almost wanted them to be themselves. I know mm. that's that feels uh, like uh, maybe that is who they are, mm. but I, it, it all felt far too put on and it didn't there was no nothing genuine on this album that really reached out now in terms of my worst the worst song I, there was really nothing specific for me i i don't have the same specificity that you have out of uh iggy pop although i i fear that i may agree with you very strongly if i looked at that song specifically the one that you picked but remember, for me i remember feeling emotionless after that yeah yeah but for me i remember being particularly turned off from dirty sexy money by the struts yeah. uh, off the struts album um i just uh, it was just it was bad <laughs> i don't know i i it's almost random i've pulled this before on on albums that i disliked where i just kind of chose something almost at random because on an album you dislike that strongly there aren't too many saving graces and picking one is almost as good as picking another i feel like last year might be the only time we were completely unanimous about the worst album with uh hesitant alien but uh yeah. it's nice to know we're finding variety of crap from what the little crap we had this year. Uh, no, I'm not finding that much variety because the struts. Oh, you picked the struts also. Yeah, um, but I did not want to actually expel any more effort on the album because I didn't think it warranted it anymore. So I didn't bother picking a worse song from it. The whole album is the worst song for you. Yeah. All right. Okay. Yeah, it was. It was just. As, as Steve put it, just not good. <laughs> just not good. All right, Crash Course really phoned it in on that one. Didn't <laughs> well, no, no, no. They phoned it in. They, they phoned it in. We're meeting their expectations. I'm going to say, there probably is an audience out there for them, but there was nothing on that album for me. And yeah. I'll be just, that's, that's me being honest. But now, we move on to the winners. Best song, best album. Let's start with best song. Uh, someone else go first. All right, I'll go first. My best song is a song I touched on a little earlier and uh, a song that John's mentioned, um, a band we've all mentioned, and uh, it was hard to pick a best song. At first I wanted to pick it off my best album, but I couldn't because the best album to me, the whole album was unseparable. Almost the exact opposite problem that I had with the struts. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So, um, but my best song is undoubtedly the best song on that record and was a contender for best album but didn't didn't actually make the cut and that is Red Hot Chili Peppers Goodbye Angel. It's just something about the structure of that song, the emotion in that song, how it is about something so dark that you find a light in it and you find a cope a thing to cope with within it and again that bass solo into jam, I mean it's just in Freaking incredible. You know, these are musicians that if, if if I were to define any modern rock group as virtuosic, the Red Hot Chili Peppers would be up there for sure. Maybe not the most virtuosic, but one of. Um, but that song still hits me in a way unlike any other song. And it's not just about moving me. It's about making me feel everything and move me constantly. I can still hear the drums. Yeah. So that's my best song, and to, to 
explained further seems unnecessary, um, especially if you've heard it. If, it. if you had not, please go check out The Getaway and that song specifically. Mine, I've talked to death like half a dozen times already tonight. Um, Ishigam is no shocker because it was one of the two five-star albums. So the five-star track Mutant mm-hmm. um, had to be the choice. And uh, it was primarily because it was something that was completely unique that I listened to this year uh, because it, was, it, it felt like a soul. At the end of the day, it felt like a soul, an actual artist being able to communicate that to me. And that is something I don't think I've really experienced before, and it's commendable in and of itself. So I, I, I'm not going to speak more of it. Mutant. Um, you may have noticed that I described the transitions in Scrimshaw in a series of timestamps that probably spanned most of that track. Uh, That's because when you consider that the track is a giant set of transitions, an experiment, I think it may amount to be one of my favorite tracks of the year. I know that's a bit redundant here, and I because I pretty much just went at length at everything that I love about about Scrimshaw, but that's just fascinating to me, that that an entire track could be built off of those transitions. And I meant what I said when it's like someone has control over a knob that controls your goosebumps, right? And they're just constantly cranking it up, cranking it up, sometimes leaving it to just, just simmer for a while, and then raising the intensity, raising the intensity. It's a, it's a bizarre track, and it's an experience like I've had in just about no other. There are... Definitely other great songs of the year. So many things off of Prager and so many things off of Eno. But just that that prospect, that project is such a specific thing that I, I, I think I'm really more about unique ideas this year. And I think that's why it's, it's getting the, the best song or best piece in this case. All right. Now on to the pinnacle of what we choose. Uh, as far as albums go, albums are what we review. We review on an album level. And so these are our best albums of 2016. Um, for me, I think it's funny that this is my favorite, al- my fa- one of my favorites and the best album of the year for me. And yet it isn't probably going to be for you guys unless you absolutely surprise me and because it was mentioned earlier. But my best album is FFS by FFS. Like, I, I just... Like I said earlier, I can't separate the tracks on this record. It is cohesively the best album of the year, my highest rating of the year, because it is just almost flawless for what I want from an album. That's why I didn't pick it for best arc or best theme, because I wanted albums that strived, that focused specifically on best arc or best theme. Whereas this, the whole package just works so well together. Even if the theme is not super consistent or the arc is not perfect, the album as a whole is so tight and the musicians are so tight and I get so much joy out of this record. Unbridled joy and that's something that I find like Steve was saying earlier, we just don't get enough of on this podcast. We tend to gravitate towards the more emotional, darker stuff. This album is so delightfully incredible, you know, that I I couldn't help but make it my best album of the year, which not doesn't nearly reflect how 2016 played out for a lot of us, but it is for sure one of my is my favorite album of the year. You're a son of a bitch. <laughs> um, 
because I also chose FFS. <laughs> uh Mostly because there's a quote that we said. I forget who it was. I'm pretty sure it was Steve. And I've already referenced it once. And that that album started at one level and just kept getting better. Like, it just kept getting better. And I was enthralled with Johnny Delusional. And that was the first track. So for me to keep enjoying more tracks and more songs and they keep getting better. And our... While not completely different genres, they feel wildly unique from piece to piece to piece. And it's 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 the only five star I've ever given out that I did not feel tentative about. That I did not feel like, am I, am I sure about? No, no, no. That album and its deluxe version, which we didn't really cover the same exact way, but I felt like for once it was a deluxe version that added to an album, like, the extra songs were really good. It was just like I, I felt five stars. I went with five stars. It did not feel like I needed to justify it. It was just that good. All right. I This was really, really, really hard. I have never had a more difficult time with my my album of the year. And I, I, I don't even know if I can stick to my guns in any specific way. I need to get these honorable mentions out of the way because there are so many different albums that are useful for so many different purposes. I am going to settle on one at the end, but I need to get I need to get this out. There were so many close contenders. FFS, sure. For sheer exuberance and for everything John just said and the way it just keeps topping itself in many ways. Recently, Scattering by Prager because that album is the most dense. It really is the most dense. I do think it is the most virtuosic front to back and I can learn from it and I can spend hours with it just divulging every single moment to moment. I Just visit the episode. And then finally, this hurt. This really hurt because I know that I think maybe it might be my personal favorite, but I'm sticking to something that has a unique point to make concerning music, and that's what I'm just going to use this particular episode as lip service for. The one that hurts to just put uh, the hair below is Eno by Second Relation. I love, love, love that album, Visit the Episode. That is probably close to the, one of the most moving albums for me, along with Volnicure by Bjork, which I think is, again, only more of an honorable mention just to say, hey, that probably is the most moving, but really... Eno is the most moving with density and the full package of the story that has great lyrics and great music and great everything else. So really, this is this is just crumbling at the seams. But I'm settling on something that has made frequent appearances here. Varmints by Anna Meredith. Maximalism. Maximalism is what was used to describe this album. I believe something that Anna Meredith herself coined. Just raw energy compressed into album form. I may have undersold the chills that the album as a whole delivered me alongside just Scrimshaw. There's only maybe two low-key tracks on this album. Same went for FFS, actually, but there are differences here. Varmints is a new kind of composition. It's fresh. It's bold. It abolishes everything simple and easy and delicate and minimalist, and instead it just taps into the energy of life itself, which seems to me to be a natural response to enjoying music and the whole structure of music. In short, there is nothing like this album in the universe. It's mostly an instrumental experiment with an arc that speaks for itself, and the few songs that feature her vocals are just as chilling. In fact, everything in the album is chilling and new. In fact, I've never felt more entrenched in the 21st century than when listening to this album, and I'm 
so glad for it for the first time. It's an exciting time when albums like this can just sweep stores, when classical composers can dabble in electronica and potentially change the way we think about music. There are some things on this album that are terrifying, like shill, but it's all different levels of intensity, different versions of elation. And so it's even, in many ways, a viable contender for most enjoyable album. It, it has all of these functions. So... Yeah, I'm sticking with varmints. All right, well, but there. Visit Eno by Second Relation because it's rest really, it. really great. I mean, realistically, listen to our catalog. Just listen get on to the it. catalog. But yeah, yeah, this year, episode two, it's seventeen. I'll make it easy. This year, we had like four or five albums that really were four seven five plus mm-hmm. near near fives, if not five. So I and and they they were grouped up too, mm. which was kind of, of kind of interesting. Well. Uh, FFS, FFS and, and Arca were close together. Oh, that's true. And um, and Red Hot Chili Peppers, I think, was around there too. If I'm not mistaken, Varmints and Yugen were actually close together. Regardless of my issues Varmints with Varmints was U- 192, Yugen was 197. Yeah, yeah, they were fairly close together. And then we got Prager and Eno like right against one another. Uh, we got a lot of really interesting things and really quality. I, we did not have many bad albums this year. We had three, I guess I want to say, are we bad. A, Maybe we a had four. a few stinkers, but not nothing ter- not terribly awful like we've had in past years. It was surprising how often we seem to be hitting at least three, five, four. Which either territory. means the overall quality of music in general is going up, or we're not working hard enough. Or we're just able to find better music. Sometimes by happenstance. I mean, some of the things that we found, like Losa, was a complete blind pull. Yeah. No, I think the reason is is I've really been trying hard <laughs> to find. Oh, I'm sorry, the best. I, brought on, I brought on a couple of good ones this year. Yeah, mm-hmm. me too. I made you guys. Hey, think. Just, just look who suggested these uh, top contenders. Well, sure. well, actually, my album of the year again goes to a uh, a listener pick as it has in previous. I years. think we've yeah. also thanked them a lot of times. Yes. Um, but looking at what we did this year, I don't, I don't think we missed out on much. Like I, we usually like to talk about what we wish we'd done at this moment, but there's nothing I wanted to do that we didn't do this year. All right. We, we really went across the board of genres, maybe country, maybe we could try that next year, but that might be the extent of it. Well, I'll be difficult and say there's plenty of afterthoughts for me. I listen and look up so much music that it's impossible for me to not have afterthoughts. It's just not possible, mm. especially since I go out of my way to try and listen to stuff that we haven't done on this damn show, because otherwise our learning, while still probably ma- more massive than anyone else who listens to music, is still focused for us. Um, and so I have three big ones that I want to mention. At the top, I want to mention the Rogue One soundtrack, because we've all seen the movie and we're all pretty much agree that it was a really good Star Wars movie. I I, I liked it. I liked components of it. I didn't. I'm gonna. I'm gonna we're be difficult re- here. We're not gonna, gonna review gonna that. We're not gonna review that components. I'm it. I'm yeah. not trying to be difficult here, but I think it's interesting that it's the first Star Wars movie to come out without a John Williams soundtrack. And to me, that's fascinating because John Williams is Star Wars. He, we discussed that on the John Williams episode. Yeah. And so for there to be a Star Wars movie in that universe that doesn't have his music is interesting to me. So I kind of wish we had taken that on. My other pick is We've Got It From Here, Thank You For Your Service by A Tribe Called Quest, one of the most prolific, well-known, and well-respected rap groups ever after our hugely long hiatus put out a brand new album this year, you know, in 2016, that was topical. There's a song called The Donald on it. Like, it's absolutely topical, focused, 
and aggressive, and I think it would be a brilliant thing to take apart because I think there's just so much there. Some of the best sampling I think I've ever heard in the history of rap, which is saying a lot. So that's another album I wish you took on. And then a personal choice for me, one of my favorite bands from the late 90s, early 2000s is a band called Alien Ant Farm. I often joke with Robert that he sounds just like their lead singer. They put out a brand new record called Always and Forever that I happen to actually really like a lot. It's reminiscent of their previous works, so it's but it boils down to one of those. If you like Alien Ant Farm, you'll like this record. So I think, while I wish we had reviewed it, I'm kind of glad that we didn't. I'm, I'm going to make fun of you for that off air. You can, but you know nothing about it, so you would just be a hypocrite. No, no, no. No, because of Alien Ant Farm. I'm going to make fun of you for that. Okay. I get Eiffel 65 shit all the time. So. That's fair. That's true. So I can, do, I can, I can do it for this one. I can't argue that. Well, I'm going to be like John here and say I think we pretty much covered the gamut. But the, the thing is, because I've been a lot more focused in culling through <clears throat> new music, mm-hmm. and in the process of doing that, yeah, there are a lot more albums that I looked at that I think would be interesting, but I did kind of bump them down the list in having favored the ones that I did pick in recent weeks. So, uh, yeah, we could pick them for, I mean, I would recommend them for just sheer curiosity's sake, but I don't know if they would be quote-unquote better or not. Well, I, there's... I, you point lately, lately I'm really one. liking to just look at the best stuff because I like to really tell artists what when I think they're doing, they're doing just dandy. And what you brought up with Rogue One, yeah, we can do more multimedia pieces. Sure. And I don't know if Star Wars would be the best or the worst choice we could possibly come up with. Um, but there's a couple video games that might be worthwhile. But honestly, that that multimedia of experiment, I guess, that we're still working on or figured out or are still trying to figure out what to bring next. Uh, yeah, I want to do more. Yeah. That I definitely want to do more. But maybe not Star Wars. Maybe we go for indie films. Maybe well, we go for indie games or indie television shows. Again, these are ones that I wish we'd reviewed. Honestly, if they're on this list, it means we won't be reviewing them. Because I probably won't be picking them in lieu of other stuff. Hmm. And that's why I bring them up. That's, I don't know. I might be picking a Tribe Called Quest. I mean, because you, you brought it to my attention, I had no idea. Yeah, I mean, it, it really. But also, these these are also albums that I've listened to and have already painted an opinion, which is sometimes hard to bring on. Mm-hmm. Um, but anyway, um, thank you for listening to our year in review. Um, we look forward to doing this every year, truly, because it's it's fun to go back and check out everything we've done. Because we do do a lot, and we're proud of what we do. Um, I want to take a moment to just thank our guests for this year, both on this show and on my other show, uh, Autographs. Um, in no absolutely particular order at all, um, I would like to thank our Crash Chords podcast guests, Alon and James of the Wall Street Players, Matt Dorsey, Mike Rugnetta, Johnny Caligula, Matt Holtzclaw, Katie Delaney, Nasty Canasta, and of course, the garage punk band Fisk. And then autographs, there have been a lot this year. I've been churning these things out, and I'm, I'm actually really thankful for uh, how much that show has grown as well. But I have quite a, uh, a grouping of uh, guests to thank, so bear with me as I thank Gary O, Jeff Baker, Magical Girl Bolesque, Three Pints Shy, Cat Pace, Matt Knife, Joe Andraga, Matt and Mike Javiza of Continental Recording Studio, Sharon Knight, Aaron Little, Hops, Zeiss, The Return of Michael Kill, one of my earliest guests, Danger Doll, Anya Keister, Doc Wasabosco, Kelly O of the Dolly Rots, Khalid Dejani, Mike Rugnetta, crossover guest, as well as a few others I've mentioned before, Iron Jones, Jared Shernaski of Parade Grounds, Spose, 
Grace Kendall and Storyville, who was my first interview of this year, uh, this year being 2016. Um, you know, I think that while we're responsible for a lot of the success we make, of course, it's who we know as well. And we're thankful for all the guests who come on either show because they help us build our audience. And it's always fun to share in others' works as well as our own. So um, we will not have a spam mail this week. Um, the spam bots can breathe a sigh of relief. That's right. We'll take that on the new year. But I do have They to... can do a couple of things, but sigh of relief is not the first I'd mention. But, um, mention. <laughs> but I'm going to uh, wrap us up, of course, with uh, our first album of our 2017 season. And Wait with bated breath. I, I, I want to... I, I came to this album because I like the tradition of picking albums by artists that are known, that either have been on hiatus or we just like jumping into New York. Now, I would be lying if I'd say that I hadn't approached the new Metallica record, but I decided not to go with it. Um, I think because I have too much personal stake in Metallica. I like a lot of their work, but I also hated a lot of their recent work, and I feel like it would be too personal for me, and it would color my opinion. So instead, I picked an artist that I genuinely pretty much like all of his work, and that is, of course, Sting and his brand new record, 57th and 9th. Which I believe is the corners, the corners where his uh, where his home is in New York. Now I'm excited. Yeah, I'm as, as a huge fan of the Police growing up, Me I am too. very. Excited. That's, I wish he had said Sting and the Police. See, but not enough people his give his individual stuff is important. In I found I've always enjoyed his singles. But the police, like, their albums Yeah, but amazing. the police don't exist anymore. Yeah, yeah, I know. It was the albums that were I, I would argue, I would agree that the police was the better better of the two. Like, I like his solo career, but I loved the stuff he did with the police. That said, Sting is still Sting. He's still an incredible musician. And I still believe he wrote a lot of the songs originally uh-huh. for the police. He did. And I've loved, his, I agree with John, I've loved his singles, but I've loved his album, his solo albums as well on the whole. And so when I saw that he had a new record that just came out, I was very excited to pick it. So that's, again, 57th and 9th by Sting, we will take that on as our first album of the 2017 season. So as we sign off 2016 season, the year of 2016, please remember, as always, music is life and and life life is good. If you enjoyed this and other album analyses, topics, and guests, please subscribe to the Crash Chords Podcast on iTunes, where you can also rate us and review us. For more media, also subscribe to Matt's one-on-one interview series, Crash Chords Autographs. To receive emails on all new content, subscribe at the top of our homepage. Also receive updates by liking us on Facebook, following us on Twitter at Crash Chords Web, our Tumblr, and our YouTube channel. And remember, keep the discussion going, because music is life, and life is good. If you have any questions or comments, feel free to share them in the comment board below each post. Otherwise, email us directly at admin at crashchords.com.